Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. All right, everybody, we want to take a second to talk to you about an amazing sponsor. We have an amazing relationship with RayAllen.com. Ray Allen is a one-stop shop for everything dog, not just working dogs. Everything dog that you need, you can go down there, check them out, RayAllen.com. Awesome people. They got everything you need. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with a dog trip. They've been with us from the start. Uh, great collars, great ball poppers, great GPS tracking, big dog, small dog, bark collars, everything. I got everything like that they have at the kennel. We use it every day. Be sure to head them up, dogtrip.com. Listen for the discount code later in the episode. Hey, guys, it's going to happen. August 16th through the 19th, HITS is coming back. The HITS Canine Conference in Orlando, Florida, August 16th through the 19th. Get on there. It's the biggest, the best. Check it out. Hitscanine.net. Hitscanine.net. Get registered now. Take the guesswork out of making sure you're feeding your working dog correctly by using Kinetic Dog Food. Hit them up at kineticdogfood.com and look them up on the Instagrams at Kinetic Dog Food. Take all the guesswork out and do it right from the beginning. We love Horizon Structures. Dude, this stuff is so awesome, man. You can get online. You can talk to them. You could build it. You want from... Mild to wild, they'll come bring it to your place, set it down on your pad, hook up your power, hook up your water, and you can put dogs in it that day. If you don't believe me, check out some guys like uh, Justin Rigney. He's got a great setup there. Ask him. Check him out, horizonstructures.com. All right, we are back. Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. I am Ted Summers from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, with me, as always, from Canton, Ohio, is Eric. Eric, what's going on? Uh, pets, and right now... um. Still holding to my no police dogs. Although I think I don't think I'm going to make it out of October. I have like several agencies asking for dogs. Um, <clears throat> some green, some green plus, and pre-trained. It's going to be a busy winter, but uh, so I got to get on that. But I've been up at the facility from about 8 a.m. till 7 p.m. almost every night. Um, day training dogs, running reps. I got. Um, Frenchy puppy that I'm doing, and a, I saw that. Yeah, and a uh, Doberman is humongous. Uh, he's a good dude. He's he's the biggest I've ever seen. I keep seeing can't fit in any crates in my van. <laughs> Pictures of him just riding around in yeah. the van. Yeah, so. he can't fit in the crate. So I got a. He just stands up there. He's a good dude. Um, a little bit of, a little bit of reactivity, and supposedly he'll attack a dog. So I don't know what's going on with you. Ah, uh, pets. We are full. And in a holding pattern, I we are like full, full. Um, and police canine is kicking up. I just got um, a new Dutchie uh, from Michael Moss down in Florida. Uh, his name's Kevlar. Super cool dog. Got him the other day. And then uh, I got a puppy project from Holly Benitez, uh, one of her. And he's a psychopath. <laughs> he is super clean, though. We were, we're in like, I've had him about two days and we are uh, 17 and 0 on potty breaks. So we've had no potty accidents. So that's awesome. Uh, he fired up on, he's 10 weeks old. I think he fired up on somebody yesterday in a restaurant. They had a napkin in their hand and he went over and fucking snatched it from her. She thought it was cute. And I'm like, lady, <laughs> it's like, yeah. God damn it. So uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's fun. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with him. Um, the plan is not to keep him, so we're going to raise him, and uh, me and Jacob and Paul and Josh are going to work him and see where we go with there with him there. So uh, yeah, uh, other than that, we training, training, training. I've got 
some handler school scheduled for probably right after Thanksgiving. So, uh, yeah, or Ooh. double dual purpose in a single. So should be good. Yeah. Um, so what do we got going on tonight? So earlier in the summer, we announced uh, that we we're going to do a question and answer episode. Uh, those are always pretty popular. People like them. Yeah. So we got um, uh, questions submitted on Patreon, pay, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. Our plan originally was to have a whole bunch of outside trainers. We would just record them answering questions with us and then put their splicer answers in. But as it's weird, everybody is busy. It's so hard to kind of coordinate stuff like that. So, yeah, so we'll just do it ourselves. And, um, you know, if uh, when this comes out, if any other any trainers out there have a different answer, something that's um, maybe a different complete viewpoint or perspective on a thing, reach out to us, man. We'll 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 get you on and you <clears throat> maybe I'll even learn some shit from you. So, um but yeah, that's so that's what we're going to do. We're going to, um, Ted and I are basically going to take turns reading questions. Um, we have not read them. I mean, I looked, I mean, I pulled up the email. You can not, not see them, but um, so our answers should be, aren't, aren't researched, scripted. If we don't know, we will say we don't know. If, you know, if it's not really our thing, we'll say it's not our thing. But um yeah, so we'll read the stuff from this from social media, and then we'll we'll answer the questions from Patreon. And um, yeah. our dog Mac, the uh, Greyhound, is being a whiny bee, so you might hear him. I, I put the puppy. The puppy's outside. He his, well, he's he's loud. So yeah, <laughs> like like his bad. babysitting him. So <laughs> my my daughter is home for the night from school. She had a doctor's appointment. She's downstairs with the Frenchie. Mm. So that's why he's whining because he can hear him playing. So, oh, are you going to get one? You're going to get a Frenchie? No, that's, fir- that's no, the first no question. That's no the more first question. Yeah. I, your Instagram story says you're going to get one. Uh, engagement, buddy. It's all <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, all right. <laughs> I'll read the um, I'll read the first I'll start with the first question from the email um, right. that we have, and then we'll go from there. So, Holly Ray says, "Ask I am training my working line GSD and PSA." He's doing great, but really dislikes getting in the car, which is a problem for the carjacking scenarios. Any suggestions on working through this? So cars are one of those things. So the for those that aren't familiar with the PSA scenario, um, you're in the vehicle and it's a bite on a hidden sleeve then uh, a verbal out. Um, we have rock jugs and the PDC and then we have gunfire in the one where we don't shoot the judge. Um, very important. So it's from within the vehicle and they bite. So, and this has applications to police dogs too. With police dogs, we generally never bite from within the vehicle. It's always like going into another vehicle. So one thing that is extremely important, and I say this all the time, like teaching a dog to get into a car is a skill set all of itself. So it's a little bit different than a kennel. So when we start looking at why that PSA scenario can be so difficult and why I actually like decoying that one. Cause it's always the first one. And if you can, if you do it correctly, you can get in the dog's head and you can mess with them and the handler for the attack on handler and then the courage test and everything else. So the trick with the vehicle is they can't get away from you. So when we're out in an open field or you're wherever, and if you apply too much heat to a dog, 
um, in a vehicle, there's not really anywhere for him to go. Um, as a decoy, like I've chased dogs into cars. I've chased them. Uh, we've applied a lot of heat to dogs during trials. Dogs have gotten into like floorboards and shit, trying to get away from you. Um, and then for police dogs, it's kind of the same thing. Like if you have somebody that is really not about that life and doesn't want to get, doesn't want to go to jail, or you have a decoy that is really, really not making it easy. It's difficult for the dogs as the targets aren't available. There's no way for them to exit. There's it's a ton of spatial pressure, both for, uh, for the dog basically. Now in terms of getting him in and out of the car, um, I do it. As, as, as simple as I start super, super low and drive and I'll throw like a ball into the back of the car, have him come in and out, in and out, in and out, over and over and over again. For the police dog guys, I see Gary or Worthless Handler doing this. And then one of our handlers from an HRD scenario, uh, seminar did this where um, while they're gassing the vehicle up, uh, they have a motor pool, has a bunch of cars in it, shot at whatever else. And they're constantly teaching the dog to get in and out of the car, in and out of the car, over and over and over again until it becomes a just like get in the damn car like it's not that big of a deal um with the psa side specifically once the dog is comfortable doing it and you have a donor car or a car that you don't mind messing up or if you have one done just put something down so you don't tear everything up on the inside but we allow the dog to chase the decoy through uh before we start working on the actual like barks and the disengagement and all that kind of stuff that revolves around um how they judge that in psa but um, as far as the getting in and out of the vehicle, like it's a spatial pressure thing. And if he's not, I mean, if he obviously rides in the car, he's got to go to training. So he doesn't have a problem getting in the car that way, but getting him in the front seat is probably one of those. Things. The other thing too, that I want to point out here is that if you're in, and this has application to police dogs too, like if you're in PSA and you transport your dog in a kennel a lot, they're generally are not that it's not that big of a deal. I've seen dogs that compete in PSA that are really nice that ride around in the vehicle, just like when they're riding around, they just ride around like wherever, right in the back, and they're not allowed in the front seat. So the only time they're allowed in the front seat is when they're doing bite work or when they're doing a doing this specifically. And I've seen dogs like are really unsure, like, am I supposed to be in the front seat? Should I be in the back? Or they'll jump into the front and then go to the back seat. So if you're going to do it, make it super clear that they're going to stay in the front seat and they're going to engage. And, you know, we don't want to run the scenario full speed, like right off the bat, like get the dog in and have the decoy do the whole, Hey, where I'm lost, blah, blah, blah thing. So what about you? E? No, that's it. I actually don't work that scenario. So, um, but I, I'm, we, we do our vehicle extraction sometimes where the dog goes through the window and, we see the same kind of issues where a dog goes in and bites or doesn't, and it's just weirded out in there. And we'll start with um, baby steps and then getting him to chase the the decoy through the car. Same yeah. kind of same kind of thing. All right, next question. Uh so Da Rolo, uh, that's got to be from Instagram. Uh, what is the coldest track that can be worked, and what are the hottest track that can be worked, and make every else easy for five minutes last scene to start track with no wind um surface for cold snow and heat easy level one grass so i'm assuming that this person um probably is english is a second language so it's kind of broken but what they're asking oh yeah because they want us to do it in celsius no we measure stuff in washing machines here I, we don't do that so we're gonna, we're gonna be fahrenheit <laughs> you said you wouldn't be mad 
Um, this is a this is an environment question, not an environmental, but an environment question on tracking. Um, I don't live or have dogs <clears throat> deployed in areas that are super super hot or super cold, and I mean extremes like negative cold, like negative twenty, negative thirty degrees Fahrenheit, or upwards of 110, 115 degrees Fahrenheit in the summertime. However, um, I do know handlers that work in those environments. We were just in uh, Billings, Montana. Uh, working with the those dudes up there, and there were guys from Utah, Montana, and South Dakota, uh, and Colorado. Um, but they talk, they track up there, and they track in the cold. Um, and then we know handlers on Bortac um, and in uh, the Border Patrol. They're down in South Texas, and I have friends that have hand, that are handling down there as well. That they'll track in that they'll track in that weather hundred uh, percent. The biggest thing here, I, I honestly don't know that there is an answer that is like, you shouldn't track if it's above or below other than making sure you understand the signs of heat and or cold stress on a dog. Um, and then how to treat that, um, which is super important for me um, answering this question. That said, I don't necessarily think that any of those are like harder or easier than the other when it's cold, you know, air is heavier, it stays lower to the ground when it's hot, it tends to burn off easier. Um, so it dogs will track if there is odor there. Um, so everything still applies last known location, you know, if there, well, you said no wind, but if there's any wind direction, what direction they were traveling, there's all of those normal things are into play. I don't really look at temperature, as a thing that makes a track more difficult or less difficult than any other, it is definitely an environment factor, but, um, so is humidity. So is wind. So is the terrain. Like there is a, well, terrain is more geographic than environmental, but it it's one of those things that I think is not really, I don't think you can isolate it in a vacuum. I may be wrong. I don't know if you're listening to this and you have like some anecdotal evidence and please like, other than the health side, like obviously we're not going to track a dog into the ground, burn them up and kill them from heat stress. And we're obviously not going to let them die from frostbite or, you know, frozen paws and shit. But I mean, they track people in Alaska and they track them in, in Northern Idaho and, and Montana and Minnesota. I'm sure there's got to be a handler. For, I, we can ask Laz. Laz has a ton of dogs up there in fucking Minnesota, up way up North, like up near Canada. I need to track people. Plus we know people in Canada. Somebody answer this for us that lives up there where it's fucking cold. It's not cold here. So I don't know the answer, honestly. What about you? Well, yeah. Uh, so in Canada, their big thing that they're known for is tracking. I th- right. I might be wrong, but I think in most places in Canada, the tracking tests, your certifications, a mile or a couple miles. I think I read once. Wow. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, we test dogs in Ohio year round, state certification. Sometimes it's in the winter, sometimes it's in the summer, whatever. All four seasons. The track sits for 30 minutes. So no matter what, it's a half an hour old track. Um, The difficulty is the wind, of course. And if it's ice, like pure ice out, and then the wind is coming through, it's like trying to track on blacktop in the middle of a, you know, a big windstorm. So I, I judge it off of, um, as far as cold and heat is, is it safe for the dog? Will, you know, if it's too hot, the dog might, he might start tracking and pretty short, you know, pretty short period of time be out, out of work. Um, so I kind of, I kind of view it like that. The other part of the question, what's the, um, no, it just said coldest as in winter. Okay. 
I was thinking it meant waiting tracks. Um, and then, so yeah, I, uh, I, uh, we're the same, man. We, I mean, I've tracked in negative degree temperatures here and it was fucking miserable. It was horrible. And I didn't think the dog did all that great. Um, so, and then hot, you know, that's where you always risk them getting hurt. So, yeah. all right. Um, another one, Michelle Lovelett. When training a GSD versus Dobermans, do you find the GSD waits for commands and Adobe will seize the initiative? Therefore, a GSD is a cold-trained canine and a Doberman is a hot-trained, does not wait for commands, but rather seize the initiative. Is this true or myth? And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't even really know what she's talking about, but what about you? Um, I, I think I kind of understand what's going on here. And, you know, there's a lot of... Um, I don't know myths or well she says it myth um about like certain breeds like and like all german shepherds are this way i had somebody tell me the other day that a black german shepherd is a certain way i'm like no they're just they look different than the other one i mean it's not like i mean i've trained some super nice black german shepherds and i've seen some that suck and i've seen some really nice dobermans and i've also seen some that suck that are terrible in terms of being police dogs anyway um so i don't necessarily think that it's productive to like try to water both of those breeds down into like one is this way or one is that way. I've had German shepherds that like will in the words of the question and the phrasing of the question will absolutely seize the initiative or they will do their own thing like immediately once they've been trained. Um, what this question really boils down to is um, like drive capping, which there's a couple of other questions we kind of skimmed through here, which we're going to talk about a little bit also, but um I'm not like, I don't necessarily think that that's true. I think, you know, it's one of those deals you hear people say it all the time, train the dog in front of you. I've seen dogs that hundred percent do not meet the breed standard in terms of what, well, they, they don't look, they don't act like a normal dog and you hear it all the time. It's a German, a Malinois and a German shepherd body and blah, 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 and everything else. So as far as, you know, them being different to say that you have to train them differently, I don't think that's the case without a doubt. I've trained some Dobermans and German shepherds for, uh, like pets that I train them the same way. I mean, they all work the same way. So um, I think this question is more geared towards like protection work. Um, and then we're talking about some environmental issues, like how then, you know, like how reactive is the dog in terms of how thresholds and all that other stuff. But I don't necessarily think that that's like indicative of each individual breed. It's more of an individual dog. I just took a picture of that question and sent it to Duke canine. Duke's uh oh, yeah. Duke's the Doberman. Yeah, yeah, out in California. During this time, maybe he'll answer it. And if yeah, he answers, yeah. I will. Go. I'll say this. Um I haven't done I haven't worked a, a working Doberman in a long time. I'm trying to think how it was one time. It was a long time ago. But we train a lot of Dobermans on the pet side of the business. Um we have a relationship with a lady who's a breeder and importer. And we do all her dogs. So right now we have nine of them in the pipeline. Um, and I find the Dobermans to be um, very codependent on the handler or the trainer. Um, and so <clears throat> may, maybe they're seizing the initiative to, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about that. I, I just find them to be very handler oriented. And um, 
So, you know, they still can learn A plus B equals C, though. So, yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, Mike Lambert, do you instill control on young puppies you have raised that you plan on making working dogs, assuming they are going to cut it to make patrol dogs? I have heard the ideas of never correcting a young dog until he's nine months old, so he thinks he's the baddest mofo in the world. It seems like a long nine months of getting your stuff destroyed in your house, peed and pooped in. I always assume the dogs either have it or they don't. Control seems to be needed. So there's this pervasive myth that has gone on, and I hear, I hear it, I heard it the other day. Um, that you don't want to do obedience until whenever, right? You don't want to do control work. You don't want to do obedience until a certain age. And I don't know where the nine months came from. I've heard nine months. I've heard 10 months. I've heard a year and nobody can tell me where it comes from. And everybody talks about some dude that speaks like Swiss German or something. And he only does it this way. And again, it kind of like referenced what I just said about certain breeds um, like all German shepherds or all Dobermans or all Malinois, um, need to, you know, be handled or trained this way. There are some generalizations that I can tell you, like if you have a really nice working German shepherd or Malinois and you try and raise them like a pit bull or what I call a fathead, like a Mulser breed, and you try and raise those dogs the same way, you will absolutely not end up with what you think. Um, that that I can guarantee you, I've seen that I, I have trained and handled and converted dogs that were started that way. That is not, and that's not necessarily we're talking about here, but, um, I, you know, like, for example, I got this new puppy, uh, he's 10 weeks old and he has no problem biting. God bless. If it moves, he'll bite it. Um, I am not worried about this dog biting. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I can already tell just from having this dog 48 hours that my problems with him are going to be around control. Um, he is not he does not have any environmental problems, which we're going to talk about in the next couple of questions. He does not have another like see he doesn't have any gripping problems. Um, everything that I'm the problem I'm going to have with this dog is going to be control and drive capping. So I'm not going to do any drive building with him. I, he does not need it he needs control. So he is learning that his entire universe revolves around me right now, or whoever's holding the leash is what it'll eventually become uh, as a working dog. And that not necessarily, I don't want him to make his own decisions, but I definitely don't want him doing anything right now. Um, But I, and the other thing, when we see, when you, the idea of correction is one of these, that it has to be positive punishment. While positive punishment is extremely effective, if it's perceived as serious and it's consistent, it's also relative to the age and experience of the dog and the infraction, right? So I'm not going to go after a 10-week-old puppy like I do a four-year-old mature patrol dog that's been certified and has multiple live engagements on the street and blah, blah, blah. And he's just, I mean, it's, it's not a hard, fast rule. The other thing here is it's like, I just mentioned, you train the dog that's in front of you, my personal dog, my male Leck, for those that know him, um, at 11 months old, that dog was displaying adult behaviors. Um, he was not an adult mentally, (laughs) Uh, but he displayed adult behaviors in, in both prey and defense. And, um, while he wasn't mentally mature enough to work in true defense, I, so I didn't let him, but he displayed those things and, um, we use defense and we use corrections in those younger dogs 
in an age appropriate and a developmental appropriate way um, relative to where the dog's at in their training cycles and their experience and everything else. But I, I hate hard, fast rules. Like you can't correct a dog till he's nine months old. Like you've got a fucking calendar on your wall and you're like marking shit off. I'm like, Oh, it's tomorrow. He turns nine months. And now I can beat his ass. No, it's not. I don't, I mean, and corrections don't necessarily have to be, uh, like you don't necessarily have to, it's not like, you don't got to print a print collar on him or an e-collar or like anything else. I mean, it can be as simple as the game ends or, there's any number of things that can be perceived as a correction for a bait for, for a very, very young dog, but no, I'll correct. I corrected this little shithead puppy today for smoking me. He got all pissy with me, a possession. I took a ball away from him and he got possessive and that shit ended real quick. So, um, people want to ask where handler aggression is created. Sure. Shit doesn't help. So mm. I, yeah, he, he, he learned real fast that if I want something, I'm going to take it from him and he's not going to do shit about it. So, but when I take it from it, it doesn't necessarily mean the game ends. So, uh, but no, I corrected him for, but it was appropriate to what he did and how old he is. So yeah. What are you thinking? Yeah. <clears throat> I don't do for a lot of dogs, puppy to patrol. Um, although when we got Linus, if you guys remember Dutch Shepherd Linus, he, yep. um, my buddy Carl took him and got him to about 11 months old. I think it was. And, um, did all the obedience on him, all of it. And, and just did a, just a lot of stuff, but, um, he taught him all the commands, which listen, you can teach recall, come down, sit and a bunch of other things. And that's not actually just, it's not really control, like it's obedience, but you, it's all through, um, you know, positive motivation positive reward and um, positive reinforcement is what I'm trying to say, but you can, you can do most of it through that and then use positive punishment to stop things. One of the most powerful things though, for puppies and dogs and adult dogs is correcting a dog for unwanted behavior and make without talking and making the dog think he did it to himself. It's super huge when keeping a bad relationship with the handler or the trainer. Uh, for example, jumping, you can, uh, little, you know, little puppies and young dogs that come in and, and jump, jumping gets old, it gets fucking old from police dogs, puppy dogs, pet dogs, everything jumping on people's what almost everybody wants stopped. And, yep. um, handlers don't mind, you know, the dog comes up at some point, but when you're, when you're teaching all that stuff, like I'll just, as they're coming up, I step on the leash. I go to jump. They get self-corrected. They sit. They get rewarded. A couple of those, the dogs will walk up to you and sit and not jump on you. No, it doesn't keep them from jumping on a man to bite when they get older. But those are just one little example um, of doing as much stuff with the dog through self-discovery, positive and negative, so that uh, they don't think that you're putting all that in. I, I'm not letting a dog, a puppy growing up, become a wild animal. No. Yeah, who wants to <laughs> live with that? They're already fucking wild animals. Right. They already, I mean, I, I mean to live? That, nobody wants to live with that. And that's what, you know, and that's what Mike, has. he was like, either assumes they have or they don't. And they do. I mean, and I'm going to say this and I'm just kind of broad, but nothing that I, if you're a experienced trainer and you're raising a dog for that, there's not a lot you can do 
in in the raising of those dogs that's going to suppress that right so there's a natural amount of drive or there's a natural amount of whatever and you can kind of like manipulate it on a scale of a little bit that's why i was talking about that puppy i have he does not need any more drive I, that is not going to be his that is not going to be my problem with him that dog <laughs> he that is not going to be the issue with him so i don't need to do drive building and air quotes if you're not watching youtube i need to do control work and capping with him or start introducing the idea of capping to him and let's make good choices dummy which there's a question down the line here and we're going to talk about in a second like you know the difference between drive and clarity and you know i think a lot of time and we're going to talk about this in a second too like people like one drive 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 and i'm like great you have all this fucking drive now what and we haven't like just like human beings teaching dogs boundaries and how to live whether they be pet dogs or police dogs like acceptable behaviors and what boundaries are acceptable or not acceptable is completely okay and that does not suppress their drive like I, I don't give it. There isn't a canine handler alive that likes to get bit by their own fucking dog. Like there is no excuse for handler aggressive dogs. If you're handling correctly, you're not fucking smoking in front of a reason and whatever else and picking fights where you don't need to. But I mean, you're right. They either have it or they don't. And you know, I can't change genetics on the on pets or in police dogs. I have what I. I mean, it's the dog in front of me. That's genetically what I have. So it is what it is. And real quick before we move on, think about this. Um whether police dog people think sport dog people are, are worth anything, you know, you hear that bullshit all the time, but there are a lot. And I mean, a lot, lot, lot of sport, uh, sport dogs on the sport fields all over the world that are murderers, straight up murderers, buddy. And they'll come off. I've worked them. Yeah. And you can throw (laughs) them in the back of your cruiser and then be a patrol dog the next day, better than most dogs that you have at your department. And those guys all started working those dogs as puppies. Yep. And it wasn't just uh, letting them bite their pant leg. They were teaching no. them all the obedience, all of the all of the uh, control as little dogs. So, all right, let's move on. Um, Doug asks, uh, what is the best process slash training plan for improving oh. the verbal out on a mature, experienced canine? Man, uh, so there's a lot that there's a lot to unpack on this one. We, it seems like outing is one of those mythical things, right? Eric just mentioned, uh, like sport dogs and some of those dogs being straight murderers to, to be successful and, and to title in sport, you have got to out to pass a national police certification and a state certification. Every single one of them requires a verbal out, sometimes multiple. You have to have it. Um, on the police side to be compliant with Kerr versus West Palm Beach to demonstrate one of the seven mandates for um, handler control, you have to have an out. You just do. When we go to HRD, I tell people, well, you have to have an out. On the police side, we have multiple ways. We tell them out, we make them out, or we break them off. Like, whatever it is, but you got to be proficient in all three. In fact, Worthless Handlers had a post about that, about why one of those versions is super important, and he's completely right. He's right. Verbal outs are super important mandatory liftoffs are, and breakoffs are all important as well. So if we have a dog that is an unknown background, say you get him from one of the massive kennels um, that sells, you know, like five or 600 dogs a year, we don't know what his background is. We know what his training is, right? So those dogs are, or those dogs are prepared uh, from puppies to pass those tests, um, the selection testing. They're not taught to, to out. They're just not because nobody cares. It's not part of the selection process. Um, a lot of those dogs from the get-go have problems outing. 
Um, so when we have, and, and just, and just so we don't get like way into the weeds here, we have a dog in this question that is a mature experienced canine. So let's just take an example. He's a five-year-old dog. He's had a couple of street engagements. He certifies every year, but they have to do the thing where, you know, like three or four days before the certification, they do the whole the fucking clean them up. Yeah. They, they quote unquote, clean them up. So let's go with that dog. Right. So first of all, with we talk about police dogs, we got to talk about why the outs are generally fucked up. So if we talk about a dog that's being sold from a vendor that has a, an out when he's delivered and when they go through handler school, great dog outs pass the certification the first time, no problem, big no big deal, right? Then we go to our training group. Uh, it's probably far, far away from the vendor, doesn't have an experienced decoy. And then we start having conversations about opposition reflex and we start having conversations about when and how we're outing this dog. So there's not a lot of um, conversation around how we teach police officers to out dogs verbally from young dogs and young officers or green officers, I should say, and young dogs, right? So it's a contextual thing. So what comes out of your mouth out of a lot of the time, dog named Los, right? Or, you know, killer los or not killer i should probably say something else hmm. paco los right out 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 right and then they're yanking on the leash pop 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 on the leash right so when we train these dogs to bite we use opposition reflex to get them to move forward if they're doing it correctly and so what's coming out of your mouth is not what's coming down the line and all of a sudden the dog is like well fuck this i'm gonna fucking get it to outing on that to, to staying on and then on top of that your decoy is not helping because he's continuing to move back and forth so contextually we have several conversations going on between the handler and the dog between the dog and the decoy and then the decoy and the handler so there's three conversations going on and nobody's even on the same fucking page so then all of a sudden the dog doesn't out and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse so um the best way for maintaining it in a mature and experienced canine is making it super super clear what i like to do is take one of those pages out of that book we got to have the dog there so i got to take the de the handler or the decoy out well it's hard to teach a dog to out without a fucking decoy so what i normally do is take the handler out of the equation put the dog on a back tie a static back tie so there's the handler the decoy can work the tension and then we start working on opposition reflex both forward and backwards and then making it super clear when the dog goes to out with all of our guys our police dogs we teach them the whole thing that they never say when they verbally out a dog, actually, but they'll say suspect, stop fighting the dog, dog name, out command. And what that does is it gives this entire predicate deal. Like the dog knows we're getting ready to ask him to out the handler or the decoy knows we're getting ready to ask him to out. Like everybody's on the same page and it gives them a second to like, they've only got two brain cells and they're both arguing. Right. So, you know, the canine addicts guys have that t-shirt and there's like an angel on one side. He's like, or the devil's on one shoulder saying don't out. And the angels on the other shoulder saying, yeah, don't out. And then the decoy is not, nobody's helping. So a back tie on a static line removes part of the equation that causes the problem. And then we make it super fucking clear. And then timing is exceedingly important if you're using an e-collar, um, like Doug Roller and Daryl Gaunt and all those West Coast dudes are fucking ninjas with e-collars. And, you know, Eric and I both do it the same way. We do HRD seminars. We layer that on and we have them outing in three and four reps. And then you layer on the e-collar, but the, the application of the stimulus is extremely important. Now, when we talk about this, we have to, you know, cause there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this that are sport trainers or that are trainers that are really, really, really proficient in doing this. 
um, guys that I love to death, but I ha- constantly have to remind people that they're not seeing the number of dogs. I mean, shit, we've had six, almost 600 people through HRD. They're not seeing, and I've gotten news how many times Eric and I have had handlers in front of us. They're not seeing the number of dogs that we're seeing. So they don't have the number of reps doing these things that we're doing. So I have to give handlers some way to maintain this without having to be 17 years of experiencing thousands of reps with hundreds and maybe thousands of dogs. So while I understand that there's a, like a, like a very finite way to do this really, really, really well over a long period of time on a long timeline, right? If you have a training group of like six dogs or eight dogs and not have a lot of experience in the decoy pool and not a lot of experience in the handler pool, the easiest way to do it is what I just described. What about you? Um, <clears throat> yeah. When, if I'm going to work it, so like we've talked, when we talked to Carlos Ramirez, one of my favorite lines in the history of this podcast <laughs> yeah. is it's called bite work, not outwork. So we go, we start by letting the dog be on the bite for several minutes, right? Not 30, not three seconds, 10 uh, seconds, whatever, yeah. a while, a few minutes. I too like to do it through back tie. I'll do it through a back tie or I'll do it through uh, on a table. This is I'm what I'm going to do is say, fixing a dog, fixing experienced dogs, uh, having uh, outing problems prior to certification or whatever. Um, so I put, um, the dog on the back tie or on the table, I'm the decoy. I, I get them on the bite. They have a prong, they have a knee collar on and they have a prong collar on with the, the live ring on the bottom. I put the, I put the, um, and I think we have video on our Patreon of us doing Yeah, we do. So, this is how we do it too. Uh, So, I mean, this is how we teach it. I put the leash on, roll up under the the sleeve or the um, suit, the arm of the suit, and I apply pressure, right? So this is pretty standard um, negative reinforcement plus positive reinforcement and positive reinforcement after that, right? There's an entire massive company built after that concept and because it works. So, we apply pressure with the pressure goes on first. We give the out command once the dog, we hold pressure on that prong collar. When the dog lets go, the pressure goes away. That's positive reinforcement. Number one, it's, it's actually negative reinforcement, the removal of pressure, which is also a positive, right? And then I immediately give them a rebite the second positive. Negative, positive, positive. And we get them back on. Same thing. Pressure goes on first. Then they sp- the command, they spit it, release, rebite. Over and over. After f- a few reps, as soon as you start applying pressure, the dog pops off, right? Then I start doing command, then pressure, right? I'll wait just a sec. Give pressure after the command. Pretty quickly, the dog will spit that out. I give him a rebite. Do it again. Spit it out. Give him a rebite. Then I apply the pressure again. I so I'm out pressure. He comes off, and then I add a sit. Add another part to the to the math problem. Sit. Boom. I find that when you start adding the sit or you add it down, it starts to clear their brain up a little bit. And so it makes them think. 
They they don't just let go and take a cheap shot. They have to sit and they get a reward, right? In that same session, usually, so I have them doing pretty good. When I'm saying house and then waiting a second and then putting the pressure on, right? I'm giving them a chance. The out becomes faster and faster because they're trying to beat my correction. So then what happens is I then will house. And if they don't do it, there's positive punishment for not doing what I know they know how to do. Right. But each time there's a reward at the end of it in, the, in a rebite. Keep in mind when you do this, they start getting weird on, on the bite. Uh, almost all dogs, when you're teaching that kind of out, they get weird. They'll try to kind of go this way. And, um, so then I just switch arms. It gets them right back into it. Right. So then when I do that, I got them to where I'm like, house and they're spitting it, sitting rebite. Then I take the e-collar if they're familiar to the e-collar and I start it over in the same session, pressure on with the e-collar house. They spit, but pressure goes off rebite. Then command pressure out rebite and then command punishment for not doing it. We have all, all the HRDs that we worked with uh, dogs that didn't out. We had every single dog outing in 10, 15 minutes, put them up and then we bring them back in and do it. My thing is when I'm teaching the out prior to like going to certification and all that, all the outs, because most places you can't use a lot. I mean, Ohio, you can use an e-collar. If you use it on the street, nap water, obviously you can't USPCA. You can't, um, you can leave it on. You just got to give them the hand. You got to give the remote to the judge. Right. So if you have yeah. enough, the, enough reps where the dog then learns to out sit or out and come back to the handler, then I'm always giving the reward bite back to where the handler is. I have the decoy walk up and reward the bite. So as I'm doing all this, Every single rep in training gets a reward when they out. So they'll get a reward bite or back to the handler for a toy, right? Little known fact, a lots and lots of state certifications. You can out the dog to a toy as long as you didn't touch the dog to get him to out, right? So out to a toy, out to a toy. Certification day, you only got to do it once, maybe twice. It doesn't matter. You don't reward them. Who cares? It doesn't matter. But use negative reinforcement followed by positive reinforcement to train the out. So um, that's pretty much how we do it. We get every dog to do it and it's not that big video. So no. right, we're going to go and take a break. Our first break, um, come back. We got some more questions for you. Don't skip the, uh, com the uh, commercials. Read the show notes guys. Hits canine training conference. This is America's premier canine training seminar packed to the brim with the world's best instructors and me and Eric. All covering important topics. There's no better place to learn and no better place to network with other handlers, breeders, and trainers. HITS 2022 is being held in Orlando, Florida this year, August 16th through the 19th. And I know how you guys are. Everybody waits the last minute. And in the post-Rona world, everybody's training budgets are being cut and everybody's deciding whether they're going to be able to get to go or not. So don't wait because they're not going to have an infinite number of spots and the price goes up after a certain date. So get signed up as soon as possible. It's in Orlando. We'll see you there. Be sure to hit them up. Hits K9, letter K number nine dot net. One of the best relationships we have in this podcast and in this industry is with the great people down at Kinetic Dog Food. The story of Kinetic uh, Performance Dog Food is pretty simple. They wanted to make a better premium dog food for the dogs that need it the most. Their goal is to give every working and sporting dog a higher energy level 
better performance, and better overall health through superior nutrition. So they formulated a line of food based on what they considered to be the optimal profile of a performing of performance dog. They've done tons of research on this. This isn't their first rodeo. These guys know what they're doing. If you're a kennel, they will come to your kennel. They will see the problems that you have. They will check out what works for the dogs that you have. Um, they're amazing people to work with. They drop ship a pallet right to you if you want. Um, I know a lot of guys that use them. There's a bunch of different formulas on there. And uh, 32K might not be for your dogs. Maybe the 26K works. They can adjust it. They'll give you the right ideas what to do in different parts of the year. Winter's different than summer. It's uh, it's really a well-run, good dog food um, company, kineticdogfood.com. Be sure to check them out on social media too, man. They're, they're amazing folks, kineticdogfood.com. By now, you've probably all heard my story at least once. I'm usually getting tagged by dogs or hurting myself. So this next product is like near and dear to me because I actually use it. Uh, Quick Turn by Vet Care. It does great for keeping small things from turning into big ones. I use it at the kennel for uh, clients' dogs that have some issues with skin stuff or have food allergies or have environmental allergies. Works great. Keeps hot spots from making giant hot spots. And it keeps my working dogs who inevitably find magnificent ways to hurt themselves from turning it into a giant vet visit. Stops little issues from becoming big ones. So it comes in a spray, it comes in an ointment, it comes in a dressing. It's great for creating a protective barrier and promoting wound healing. You really only have to use it like once a day. So there's no reason not to have it in the vehicle. Since it's temperature stable, you don't got to worry about it getting hot, getting cold or anything like that. So put it in your first aid kit or put it in your cabinet. Vetcare.us on the internet. Quick Derm by Vetcare on, the inter- on Instagram and on Facebook. And then hit them up with the discount code 10WDR for 10% off your first order. So my entire time that I was a handler or a trainer in law enforcement, the cars at my department in the departments that I trained all had American aluminum accessory kennels in the cars. Different cars, man. Dodge Chargers, all Ford models, some Chevys, uh, SUVs, cars, everything. We loved American Aluminum Accessories. Um, it's a great product, a great company. They've been serving uh, canine law enforcement community for over 20 years. If you check out their uh, website, EZ, that's the letter Z, EZRiderOnline.com. They got testimonials. They got videos on how to. They got a list of everything they have. Uh, just today, we made a post on the Working Dog Radio social media showing a dog that survived a really bad crash because of the American aluminum kennel in the back of the car. Check them out online, guys. EasyRiderOnline.com. Just let them do their thing, man. Whatever car you got for your work, your patrol car, get a hold of them, American aluminum accessories, and get the best in the business. Next up comes uh, training courses online from our friends down at Highland Canine Training, Jason and Aaron Ferguson. So in the post-Rona world, uh, Training budgets have been getting cut. People aren't going to be able to travel, whether it be instructors or they be canine handlers and supervisors going somewhere else for training. So Highland has announced a lot of online training courses. One of those that sticks out to me is their police supervisor canine course. And it's no secret that one of the problems with canine tends to be some of the supervision issues. This course is specifically designed for administrators and covers utilization as well as liability and FL, FLSA issues. The course can be taken at your convenience and you'll receive a certificate of completion at the end. When you go to Tactical Police Canine Training, that's letter K number nine, training.com and use the discount code WDR30, you'll get 30% off of that course. All right, everybody. 
Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. We're back. Q&A episode rolling along. Um, where are we at here? Uh, we have to make our answer shorter. We have a lot of questions, but we'll try These to get next to two questions are, they're basically the same thing. So, um, yeah. So, Kirsten um, Rager, who I know, said, when selecting a puppy two to eight months, what tests are you doing or key behaviors are you looking for? And then Wayne Edging asked, when testing a new prospect, what do you personally look for looking for information to add to my lexicon? So, Ted, let's start with the puppy part real quick and then do the adult. My Well, yeah. So the puppy stuff um, is environmental. Uh, the first thing I look for is environmental. Um, genetically, like when they're that young, like what what is there already there genetically? So the very first question we had coming into the this episode was the dog doesn't like getting in the car. Um, whether it's a genetic problem or environmental or he hasn't been exposed to it or whatever it is, I got I don't have any more information. But <clears throat> put it in context of stairs or put it in context of dark rooms, slick floors, something weird. Um, if a dog genetically has no problem doing it as a puppy, they generally won't have a problem doing it as an adult. Um, and I don't have to train it. I don't have to train a dog to run into a dark room. They just do it. I don't have to train them to run upstairs. They just fucking do it. I don't have to train them to run up open back stairs. They just do it. I don't have to make these special exceptions. Now uh, there is a, a, a rebound period, right? Like sometimes some dogs need to see something once or twice or, you know, a short number of times and immediately they're fine. Like, all right, well, I've seen it once. I have, once I've seen it, I'm fine. I, it's not that big of a deal. Um, so when selecting a puppy, the biggest thing for me is, um, environmental, like a hundred percent. Then, um, I look at drive, obviously they have to have drive. If it's not there, sometimes drive comes around later, um, I definitely see that, but there should be some drive by 12 to 15 weeks old. There's got to be something there that we can at least use to train other than food. Um, I need some, I need some prey for them to work. Um, and you know, the other thing I kind of look for is like how, like, what do they just do? Like with like, what are they doing? Like, are they sleeping a lot? Are they moving around a lot? Are they, depending on their age, this question is between two to eight months. Um, you know, Puppies can be puppies. Like I don't mind them being puppies. Like I don't expect them to do adult dog shit and people shouldn't either. Um, so I don't like test them. I've heard stories about dudes testing dogs, like full on courage tests on like a seven month old dog. That's like barely biting. <laughs> I'm like, what difference is like, what good does that do? I mean, like why? Like, I mean, for what? And um, so environmentally um, rarely, in single purpose or dual purpose. And this question is basically aimed at dual purpose, but rarely do you see a dog that has an environmental problem as a puppy or an adult that also doesn't have a decoy pressure problem. Um, I can guarantee you a dog that sees an environmental problem, something that's kind of innocuous and you're like, what the fuck? Like a fan, like the first time they've seen a fan and they walk by the second time, all of a sudden they're like, Oh shit. I guarantee you for the most part, almost universally, they will have a decoy pressure problem. Um, and I don't really want to like deal with that as an adult <laughs> on the single purpose side. There is not a single purpose dog that is working or that's not working. That was washed for lack of the ability to identify target odor. They are washed in single purpose work for 
their lack of drive in terms of length, like they don't stay in drive or they have environmental problems. It's super important with the single purpose dogs too. So, and I look for environmental problems, the most random weird shit that I can find. I will, that's safe. Um, I will, what I will expose the dogs to. Um, and you know, like I, obviously I, the kennel, my kennel is like literally across the street from train tracks. So the dogs hear trains and gunshots and all stuff all the time. So I expose them to stuff as soon as I can. And I generally, with the dogs we raise, don't have any problems with that. So what about you? Well, I don't, I don't select puppies. So at all. So I, I don't, I'm not, I don't really have an answer for that. The other part of that, when testing a new prospect, what do you look for? Um, so if I'm testing a dog, uh, on the same way, the first thing I test is environmentals because that's where I fail almost all dogs. Um, if I get dogs in from vendors in Europe, um, within a couple of days, we are at an old school that I have or at the fun house and I'm doing floors, dark rooms, steps, uh, stuff like that. Um, jumping stuff, climbing stuff, things like that. I do have a um, couple agencies that like to come and their whole thing is they want to test the dog out of drive, so to speak. They uh, no no ball luring, no toy luring, just walking around the building and see that. Cool. That's fair. So um, I do that. I'm looking for a dog um, now that is social. And my thing is they can at least be human neutral. You know, um, as long as they have all the, the drives, they got to be social because we got to be able to work them. I have to have multiple people be able to work them and handle them during training. Um, uh, I just don't want a, um, a dog that is just sketchy at all times. I, I, I get to deal with that dog several times a day in and out of the van, in and out of the kennel, in the buildings, not interested in it at all if they're not. And then dry a uh, hunt. You know, can't bite them if you can't find them. Hunt, 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 hunt. Um, whether I watch to see if they're gonna, if they keep coming back to me or the, whoever the the vendor or whoever after we throw the toy, or do they keep looking and look? I don't care if they find it. They just got to keep looking, and I'll give them, I'll give them some pretty fair, easy stuff, and then we get progressively more difficult where I'm throwing it dark, deeper grass and. Stuff like that. I, I definitely want to see that. And then I do not not so much a courage test, but I do like a tie out kind of. Um, Justin Rigney calls it the boogeyman. Um, yeah, I'm, spooky I'm, dog test. Yeah, yeah I, I want to see a dog stand his ground. If if it's just me slinking around, dicking with him a little bit, let him see me, make some noise, you know, whatever. Not running up, screaming, cracking a whip at the dog, but I want to see the dog stand his ground if the dog backs up at all he's out and fail him right away um i i just want to see a dog even i just want to see a dog that's not worried about me um even if he's never seen anything like that i don't want anything in his database that that is a flight or a flea type mentality um all right so the next two are kind of related and i'll i'll, I'll read these for you ted because this is um definitely right in your wheelhouse uh, well, the first one is, what are your thoughts about taking bites from your own dog? I'll say this real quick. I handled four dogs on the streets, never took a single bite from any of them. I think it's ridiculous. Oh, I, I don't think it's ridiculous. I think it's a, a bad idea. Um, although I have a kennel full of dogs, and when I take them up to my facility, sometimes Jordan will handle them, and I will take bites from them. And later on, 
I am feeding them and taking care of them. It's not a problem. Um, so, but I just don't think it's a good idea to take bites from your patrol dog, the one you're working every day and living with. Yeah. But the other two parts of these questions are, what are some things you guys do to build a dog's hunt drive? And then biggest misconception of drive versus clarity. Dogs can get lost or get unfocused or get focused. You guys elaborate on that. Uh, please That's from our friend, Derek, and then Kevin's uh, Sumption. So those are the two. What do you, what do you do to build a dog's hunt drive? And what's the difference between drive and clarity? So as far as building hunt, um, I'm kind of one of those, like when we talked about selecting puppies and selecting, um, selecting, uh, green dogs, uh, dry, well, hunt for me is kind of a, an aberration of, of drive. So of like prey drive. So rarely is there a dog that has a shit ton of prey drive that doesn't have hunt. Now I have, I have seen it more often than, I mean, than, I would like to see, but I, it's not the other way around. They're not mutually exclusive. I don't have never seen a dog that will hunt his ass off. That also doesn't have a ton of prey. So there is a missing point in there. And, um, I think there's a genetic component for sure, but there is also a prepared component. So if the dogs are taught to use their nose, uh, from an early age, from tracking, from finding, finding odor, um, they learn very quickly that that is the way that they will, um, be successful. Um, so I literally like with young dogs, I will do the whole trick. Well, I'll hide their food downwind or upwind, I guess, depending on which direction we're coming in. And, um, we did a whole video series with hype, um, my female, uh, where I did that with her and I trained it, um, with explosive odor and, uh, put it in the backyard or put it out in a field. And that's how I fed her for about six months. And she gets to the point where I'd open the door. And I mean, she was mocking out there looking for odor to this day. If she goes out into those yards of that field, she is constantly looking for odor constantly, constantly, constantly. So it's multiple reps over time of continuing to do it. When we do the testing. What you see is you do the whole test into tall grass right? You spin them around a couple of times and then they run and they go find it. Um, and what you want to see is the dog continue to hunt and then use their nose. You're looking for changes of behavior so that you can see, like, I know this dude threw a tennis ball or a tug. I know the odor I'm looking for. So we're looking for two different things. We're looking for odor recognition, right? So they understand they're looking for this tug. They understand where it should be and they understand how to use wind and the environment to find that. Um, that, that's good for area searches. It's good for tracking. It's good for narcotics and explosive detection. It's good for everything required to use their nose. It's all the pieces together. So that's part of the reason that we, um, uh, look at it that way. And we prepare them that way. So they're constantly looking for toys. We hide toys. I hide stuff at the kennel. I hide stuff in all of our training facilities for, and stuff. I mean, like puppies. So, uh, funny story when I got a lab, uh, from the rescue lab rescue, um, came to me and like this dog is nuts so um like why what's going on they're like oh he's just he came from a working line living in a house i'm like all right cool so we get him for months that dog would only look under stuff like i had to block shit off to keep him from going low and i finally just we contacted the former owners and i was like do you guys play fetch with him in the house and he got a bunch of fucking tennis balls under the couch you're like oh yeah we found like 
you know, 40 tennis balls under the couch and the set and the other that we would throw. And so the dog learned to hunt low. He, he crushed low finds, man. Like he, from early on, he would do low finds, no problem. But, um, there was a lack of, obviously a lack of variety, but that motherfucker go find a tennis ball for sure. He would definitely hunt. Um, so the second portion of that is the whole contextual thing, right? Like you teach them to go find something during, like, it's not just you take them out and they're like, Oh, they're constantly looking. There are dogs that are like that, but like when they're at their house, like they're not looking for fucking out. Well, some of them are, but you know, it's a contextual thing to prepare them for working either as a narcotics or explosive dog or something else, or like a search and rescue or whatever it is. So I start to build that by doing easy, easy, easy finds, easy, easy, easy hides. They see stuff. They see me hide it. They figure out how to go find it. Then we do the whole hidey trick, right? So, or you hide the ball or you hide it where they can't see it. And they're like, oh, and then we start the shell game, which is how we start the imprinting for the uh, Dutch boxes. But um, if a dog doesn't have a ton of prey, you are not a ton, but they, they have to have prey. Like we use toys to reward them. They have to have a substantial toy or prey drive to work and understand that we convert that as a trainer from looking for a toy to looking for odor and they make a connection in their mind, which is the imprinting phase of what we convert. I find this odor, I get this reward, but yeah, I mean, we do it by just doing a ton of reps. So what about the second part, the misconception of drive versus clarity? So we talked about it a little bit, right? Like everybody wants drive, 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 drive. The problem with a dog that has a shit ton of drive is they're fucking nightmare to manage like all the time right like they're super edgy they fucking smoke shit that moves like if you move too fast they'll bite stuff like they'll bite dudes in stacks they'll bite backup guys because they move too fast so they start yelling um they typically have very very thin um thresholds for bites like it doesn't require a ton to get them to bite people they typically have no problem biting people that are passive they'll bite a fence post if you point them at it right so where we end up with dogs like that is drive capping, right? So Bradshaw wrote an article about it. Um, I don't know, several, I don't know, it's been several years ago, but um, the best analogy I've heard is you got to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, and once we like kind of let this kind of get expressed, and they're like, great, we have all this fucking drive. Now I've got to do a two mile track with three article finds and we lose the track and we get information from backup guys that this guy's this way. So the dog has to get out of that drive, move down into a lower state after being all amped up, not getting a bite and then having to retract. It gets a, it's a fucking management nightmare. So that's so why I was talking about this puppy. I have, I'm not going to do any drive building with him. He doesn't need it. So I'm just going to do drive capping and clarity. So when we talk about clarity is we're talking about it with outing a little bit, like does the dog understand what we're asking him to do? in all phases of drive. Um, so, right. Most of the dogs that have an outing problem will out off a ball, right? You tell them to out when you're doing narcotics work, you're like, oh, he outs. I'm like, so he understands, right? They're like, yeah. I'm like, go, I mean, then it's clearly an, an issue with drive and how much drive the dog has or what state of drive he's in, right? So if you put it on a scale from one to 10, playing with the handlers like a six and biting somebody or you know they're the highest expression of that drive which is an 11 out of 10 is biting a decoy or biting a person so the amount of reps required to maintain the level of clarity as this person as derek is mentioning is not something that happens overnight and it happens if in lower states so when we teach dogs to out not the procedure we were just talking about above 
But when I teach dogs out, I teach them to out off of lower value shit, like off of toys, off of stuff. Um, in sport work, what they'll teach them to do is hold something first and then spit it out, which is something really popular with the gun dog community. They'll do a forced fetch or a forced hold and they do it in IPO or whatever it's called now too, where they do a forced hold on the dumbbell so they don't chew it or anything else. And then the out is, so the dog learns in a lower state of drive what I'm asking him to do, which in a sense is just spit out whatever's in your mouth. It's not that hard, dummy. And, but um, yeah, I think clarity has to be done from both directions, from the top down and the bottom up. You've got to suppress drive a little bit and you've got to cap. And then you've got to get to a point where the dog understands that understands the context of the command in any drive state which is clarity yeah i had um my i'll just answer real quick to the um to derek's question about the misconception drive versus clarity you can have a dog with too much um i had two dogs this year that were at the top level of toy drive that I could, I would not want to handle. Oh, I remember one of those dogs <laughs> anymore, right? Anymore. And they would be uh, unmanageable, right? Um, they were at the top. The second one, Ronnie's his name, uh, was the opposite of what you're talking about. He was easier to teach the out on the bite than on the ball. The, and I had to get super creative with it using some uh, pet technique that I use actually called tone avoidance. It got him to launch that ball out of his mouth. Um, but uh, any more, and he would have been unteachable because he would not, under any circumstances, no matter what the exercise, no matter what you're doing, he would not work for food in any capacity ever. So it was toy, and then it was just it was just almost too much. He, he could barely, it was not clarity. He could barely live inside his own brain Till I got super creative. Um, the other dog, Jack, was um, he. I just had to change up the way I imprinted him on odor. He ended up, he's phenomenal, man. He's a great dog. So, he's the one that fucked up uh, your boxes. Yeah, fucker. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, all right. I, I'll answer the next one real quick and then we'll move okay. on. What are your thoughts on dog body armor? Should police dogs wear it or is it too much of a hindrance? So, early, when I first got into canine, the, they're flak jackets. Right. Nobody was wearing them. Uh, we had a dog, Jethro, that was shot and killed uh, in, two th in yeah, 2010. He was shot. Um, if he had a body armor on, if it had ballistic underneath protection, it would have helped. The, he got shot in the face. So that was the, we think the bullet that ultimately killed him. It didn't penetrate, but it gave him like a real bad TBI that he could never really can come back from. All the chest rounds were through and through. So there was four of them. Um, and they did no damage, but easily they could have. So we all got body armor. Now there are, there are body armor that you can get from, from, I think spikes canine fund is one of them where you can yeah. wear your entire shift, right? It's, it's got, um, buckles on it, like a, uh, like a harness. You could track on it. If you're a harness tracker, you could wear it the whole time. You just got to condition it. The other ones are, you know, maybe a little bit bulkier, but, um, but here's the thing, and this is going to break everybody's hearts here. The guys don't wear them. It's just so you know. You're, you're getting body armor, and uh, people are getting body armor for the guys, for the dog handlers, and half of them at least don't wear them. So, uh, or they're going to put them on for only certain calls. So the problem is, you know, 
Jethro got killed on a grocery store break in at three o'clock in the morning. Who thinks a guy's carrying a gun to break into a grocery store? So it's it's not those cases when you think you should have put it on or shouldn't have put it on. Most guys, I can tell you, folks, in the real world of canine, most are not wearing it uh, unless it's a rule. Um, so we'll move on from there. This is a good one. This next one. Is it okay to imprint narc odor using food as a reward, not at source, if you proof the dog off of food? Here's it real quick, Ted. This is funny. A lot of these questions that we get, I think are, and I don't know, John, if this is your case, are guys wanting validation for what they're trying to do. So I, I kind of take this one as one of those, but is it okay to imprint narc odor using food as a reward, not at source, if you proof the dog off of food? Your opinion. Uh, yeah. So here's the thing. Like we're talking about an indirect reward here. So, um, and for indirect reward, I, I will say, uh, I'm going to answer both. I, I imprint all of my dogs on food, um, young dogs anyway, um, with food. Um, and then I have food out as a distractor odor from the beginning. Um, so their reward food is out next to them. If you, there's a video that's probably going to be going up right around the first of November on Patreon. It's me working these three um, pointers, Point. Jeremy Sherry pointers from the same litter. Uh, two of them are direct reward and one is indirect reward. Um, all three food reward and you can watch them work a hundred percent from the top, like how we started it and how it's where it ends up. Um, but I'm, the difference between teaching anomalous odor and teaching target odor is what one of the skills that we as trainers have to do for detection work. Um, so imprinting narco or using food as a reward, not at source. So an indirect reward, 100%. Uh, we have a friend that works for a huge company that works for HRD sometimes that runs a um, bomb dog that is food reward. And is food reward only. The ATF famously runs food dogs all the time. In fact, it's a pain in the ass because you have to reward the dog all the time. So the indirect versus direct reward at this is kind of a like a misnomer in this situation. So the dog is going to go. They're going to perform the odor, or they're going to perform the the obedience at odor, not obedience to odor. They're going to perform obedience at odor. The handler is going to mark. They're going to come back for reward. They're going to go back to odor. And it's over and over and over again. I guarantee you, if you put food out after they've worked it a long time, they're not going to go to the fucking food. They're going to go and they're going to go look for odor and you're going to mark and they're going to come back to you. We do it all the time with the Dutch boxes. Like we'll throw tennis balls at the dogs. And uh, that dog I sold, it's up in South Dakota, Gizmo. He, that shithead, if you didn't, like if a ball didn't come out of the popper at one point in his training, like he didn't want it. Like I could throw a ball in his face. He was like, no, I want the one out of the box. Got to have it out of there. Obviously, it's direct reward toy, not indirect food. But nonetheless, he would work and would ignore toy odor all this all the time. So, what about you? Yeah, I think I think a lot of this question is the um, the the weird thing in this industry, and it's it comes from guys who've been around. It's just it's just institutional that you can't give a dark dog food as a reward. Why not? We do it for shit loads of bomb dogs why why can't we do it for narc dogs there's no difference no difference right so jack um was such a motherfucker at the boxes 
that I had to uh, go to an indirect reward food reward system to get him clarity, as we mentioned earlier, of the work, right? Eventually we switched back indirect reward to a toy and then back direct reward because that's what the handler knows, right? So um, I just trained a dog for an agency in South Carolina. Their retiring dog was food reward at source because the fight over the toy was it worth it. Those of you who <clears throat> kind of poo-poo using food um, during odor work, you should try it. You're going to be like, wow, I got three or four times as many reps done today and no fight. Oh, yeah. And Easily. it was nice <laughs> and easy and clear. You should try it. Um, the reason why it doesn't really work on the street all that much or wherever is guys don't want to carry pouches of food or anything like that. They'd rather just have a Kong or a toy. Cool. I get that. You can do the same differences in direct world back to a toy. Um, watch everything that Cameron Ford posts and yeah. lots of stuff from Justin Rigney and some others about indirect reward. They're really, they're way better at it than I am. I've learned a lot of stuff from them. Um, I'm still just kind of new on it, really teaching the bridge where the dog stays and stays and stays and waits for the mark. Um, I, I tend to jump ahead too much because of time constraints, but um, yeah, that, that video that we're going to post of those puppies, like I have a 10 week old short hair pointer sitting on explosive odor for 40, 45 seconds and then being recalled back to, for food. And then she eats and then turns around and mocks back to odor. Good. So, yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah. All right. I'll read off the next one cause, uh, and pitch it to you. Cause I think you, you're got a good answer for this. What is your definition on civil work? Oh, okay. So man, Ooh. Uh, this comes up a lot. Um, it comes up a lot. Everybody talks shit about, or not shit, but there's a lot of arguments revolving around this. And what the root of this is, is dogs that have equipment fixation. So there's a ton going on um, with civil work. Um, I think when people say it, what they're, what they're intending to mean is a dog that will bite without the presence of equipment is what I think like the common definition is right in sport work. And that's like, you hear people talk about, and it's, you hear people talk about sport dogs, like, Oh, they're not civil enough. And Eric mentioned at the top of the episode, there are some fucking serial killers working in sport work and Mondial ring and French ring. And definitely in PSA, there are some dogs that will hurt you regardless of what you're wearing. And they definitely, I guess in that term will mean civil. There are dogs, and I've trained some that are police dogs, that will bite you no matter what you're wearing. They will bite equipment. They will not bite equipment. They will bite a fence post or a traffic cone if it's in front of them. And it has a, that conversation has a lot to do with how much drive that dog actually has. Um, so it, it, I guess the direct question is, what is your definition? Is Tyler Neal, what is your direct definition of civil work? Uh, mine is dogs that bite in the absence of equipment like how do you know like dogs that'll bite like i hate saying for real because oh, it's always a real bite believe me if you do enough decoy work you'll get fucked mm -hmm. up doing it they always bite for real so um the the conversation kind of usually revolves around what equipment are you using how are you using it when are you using it and what are you doing to mitigate equipment fixation um in your training, if you have a dog that should bite for real, sport dogs do not need to bite people for real. We have to have shit to judge. If I have a dedicated sport dog, I don't give a shit 
if he doesn't bite anybody without a bite suit on. Why? Because I got to live with him and he's going to be around my friends. He's going to be around my family. I don't want him to be civil. I want him to just bite people in suits. That's fine. That's okay. Right. It doesn't make them a bad dog. And keep in mind too, a lot of those dogs, it doesn't take a lot to convince them. You know what? I've got something on under these pants. (laughs) You can go ahead and bite me, even though I'm not looking, wearing something like that. It doesn't take a ton of work for some of those dogs. So my definition is, will the dog bite what is presented? Um, And that's another part of that conversation is, will the dog bite what is presented, even if it's not a normal target in the absence of equipment? So what about you? Yeah, I think a lot of people's definition or what they think is civil work is defense. Where it's just posting up a dog and getting to fucking go off and bark at you. Um, Yeah. I I do. I do believe that's a lot of people's definition of civil work, but. I've seen um, dogs that do that. And then when it comes time to bite, they're like, nah, I'm good. And then I've seen, I have some dog. I have a couple of dogs that I've never even heard them fucking bark. Like you were talking about the spooky man test, right? Mm-hmm. We did the spooky man test with them. They just stand there and look at you. Like they don't lunge forward. They just look at you like, what the hell is wrong with this dude? Like, what is wrong with this guy? The, and they're like, bring him in. Well, yeah. They're, well, no, they don't do that. But they just kind of stand there until they learn the game. But they just kind of stand there and look at you They're like, what the fuck? What is this guy doing? Right. And they're not going anywhere. They're like, okay. And you can do everything in the world. And they're Malinois. And there's no barking. There's, I've never heard either one of these dogs bark. Not in the patrol car, not during bite work, nothing. They do. I've never heard them bark. They just don't bark. And so when you stand up to them and you like, you know, do this whole presentation of like defense work, they still stand there and look at you. They may kind of lunge forward a little bit, but the second you step inside the circle of trust, you're getting smoked. And I'm like, well, I mean, it is what it is. It doesn't look like a normal presentation for quote unquote defense or civil work, but it is definitely there because when they are put under pressure on a bite, they will make noise. And that's how I can tell when they're getting a little uncomfortable. But before that, like there's very little you can do to those dogs to scare them getting there. And that's when you hear this like prey, I'll get them there, but defense or fight quote unquote fight drive will keep them there. Defense will keep them there. Fight, pray will get them there and, f- and fight will cure. Pray or, or defense will fucking keep them there. But I mean, yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, civil work is defense. So yeah. that's another thing. Like if somebody was like, you know, how civil is the puppy? I'm like, well, or not my puppy, this one. But like I've heard people say it. I'm like, well, he's a shithead puppy. They bite anything. It doesn't count. Like, yeah. like I mean, no, I mean, like, it's not defense if they're, you know, eight weeks old and they're biting stuff. I mean, it moves. So what? <laughs> like... All right, we got one more question. I think all these were from Facebook. Uh, we got one more question from Facebook. We'll take a break and then we'll come back with Instagram and Patreon. And the last one's a real quick one. Best resource for furthering knowledge on tracking. Um, you know, we've done episodes here on tracking. Uh, Cameron Ford's done some, I think with, I did one on there with him. Um, other places, uh, podcast-wise, Jeff Shetler has... Um, a podcast about tracking and YouTube. If you're the kind that wants to visually see it and learn it, um, you know, you could go do it and you could learn a lot from learning tracking from sport trackers too. So, yeah, I'll say this too. The tracking is one of those things where everyone will swear to God up and down that they have the best fucking system. Like, and I say system and bunny quote and air quotes, because everybody's got a system. Like we've interviewed Dick Stahl, who has a very successful system. Mm-hmm. We've interviewed Jeff Shetler, who does a very different way. And he has a very successful system. You know, Justin Rigney's been on more than once. He has a very successful way that he does, which is kind of a combination. Like I've done multiple ways of footstep tracking with disturbed earth, with dogs that are, you know, more prey driven that need to see something. 
when so there's a ton of ways to start that and then well and then we haven't even done an episode on the the hydration thing so there's a ton of ways to do it but um it like they don't all work for every single dog so that i will say you gotta <laughs> you need to be good at all of them so we're gonna take a break real quick don't fast forward to the commercials uh yeah we'll be back in just a second to finish it up all right we love the perkinsons down in uh north carolina at highland canine training they are great people great trainers they got a good business model they're awesome folks we've been with them for a long time uh they're also super smart and they understand that a lot of agencies are struggling to have manpower so they're not sending people away for training you guys have been there you know you put in denied lack of manpower so they've created an online course section of their website tactical police canine training.com you get on there under training the online course but here's the best thing is they offer a supervisor canine supervisor course which we know a lot of uh, police canine supervisors don't get to go to training they don't know as much as they should right here online uh, the course discusses topics such as proper selection of dogs and handlers proper deployment effective allocation and utilization as well as liability and the flsa issues which we know is where all the legal stuff comes from interdepartmental uh, the course can be taken at your convenience and you will receive a certificate of completion at the end uh, they're offering an amazing discount guys 30 percent off using the discount code wdr30 it's a no-brainer. If you're a police supervisor and you guys have manpower issues and you can't go, get on tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com under the training tab. Get on that supervisor's course, man. I'm telling you, it's a smart decision. Another one of our favorite partnerships with the podcast here is the one and only Dogtra. The Dogtra guys have been producing some amazing tools in the dog training world for a long time. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball trainers. If it's electric, and you use it with a dog, they've probably done it. They're the best. They are revolutionizing the way you communicate with the dog. I use it daily, whether I'm using pets. Uh, I use the 200C on most of our pets. Uh, most of my patrol guys will use a 1900 hands-free, 1900S hands-free. And then I use the ball popper pretty much daily with all of our detection dogs for imprinting on our box protocols. So hit them up at Dogtra Official on Instagram and Facebook. And then you've got Dogtra.com. And when you go there, if you use the discount code WDR10, they'll give you 10% off a single item over 200 bucks. So if you're looking at a 1900S or that Ball Popper Pro or one of those things, it'll knock a substantial chunk off there. So hit them up, doctor.com, WDR10. So everybody knows that Ted and I uh, not only train police dogs, we train pet dogs, right? We train dogs. So it's why our relationship with Ray Allen manufacturing is so important. They've, these guys have been doing this so long. They knew and they understand that dogs are dogs and it's not just working dog people that need things for their dog and dog training. So you go to rayallen.com. They have everything dog related that you need. Anything that when it comes to dogs, pet dogs, your pet training dogs, police dogs, dogs you're training for other departments, anything you need, rayallen.com. Uh, they've got it. You can get on there. So if you're ordering stuff for police dogs and if you have a pet side, you can get it all in one, man. They ship it out. Got a nice big box full of a whole bunch of stuff. There's nothing better than getting a big box of dog training stuff in the mail. They also are great to us and they offer a discount code working dog radio, all capital letters, working dog radio for 10% off. Check them out. Rayallen.com. Great people. Ted and I use them every day. 
Super excited to have American Aluminum Accessories on board with us here at the podcast. These guys manufacture a wide variety of products from high quality cam locker toolboxes to an extensive line of products designed to meet the ever-changing needs of the law enforcement community. Around 1992, due to the demand for safe and secure transport for a local law enforcement agency's canine unit, they introduced the very first in-vehicle Easy Rider canine container. So it was basically what we now call just our inserts. They have continuously grown and expanded uh, the products, catering to the needs and the wants of their valued customers and high-profile clientele, and catering specifically to law enforcement. Over the years, as the needs have changed for law enforcement, they've evolved and expanded the products to include inmate transport systems, the canine training aids, which I use quite a bit of, canine inserts. Most of, every one of my guys has one of those things. And you know, you if you're not even have to be in law enforcement. I have several friends that are civilians that work. Lots of dogs that have the inserts put into their cars too. So you got one that fits, you can do it. Uh, they also do contraband and animal control systems, just to name a few. So be sure to hit them up. The website is Easy Rider Online. So that's the letter E, the letter Z, as in zebra. RiderOnline.com. If you're looking for them on Instagram and Facebook, it's American Aluminum Accessories. Feel free to hit them up there too. So our first and oldest sponsor that's been with us from the beginning is Arno out out at ALM, uh, out there in, in Las Vegas area. Arno is a great dude. He makes great stuff for, for police work and sport work, suits, tugs. I'm telling you right now, his tugs are the best in the business. You can't get any better. Multiple colors. Uh, I, I buy boxes of them from him and give them out to everybody. Uh, I've got a bite suit from him. Love it. I've had it for a little over three years, and it's holding up like a champ. Um, Ted's got a suit that he's had forever from ALM. Uh, we wouldn't go anywhere else, man. We love it. Arno is such a good dude. His uh, ALMK9Equipment.com is the website. Get on there. He's got pre-made suits. He can do custom suits based on your measurements. Um, he's got stuff already, already made up. If you kind of get a kind of generic large size, maybe for everybody, the colors he has, man, is really cool. He can put a lot of stuff on those suits. Uh, check them out. ALM canine equipment.com and use the discount code WD radio for 10% off. You know, running a kennel is one of those things that I always worry about is cleanliness and safety of dogs. And it's, it seems like it's an ever changing issue being able to house dogs and move things around everything else. So the guys at horizon structure make this as easy as possible. Literally the only thing you have to do is have water and power hookups and they deliver it and you can put dogs in that day and it's comes built, comes on a trailer. They just drop it off. You plug it in, put dogs in it and you're ready to rock. You keep them clean. You keep them safe. You keep them cool in the summer and warm in the winter time. And it's completely custom. You can go complete mild to wild. I've seen some that were stainless steel all the way from top to bottom on the inside. And then I've seen some for a, a bulldog breeder that, you know, had smaller gates because those things can't jump. So if you reach out to them, uh, they're sitting there waiting for you to call and help you through the custom design process. They have everything from two dog ones up to, uh, I want to say like 18 or 20. It's a lot of, you can put a lot of dogs, indoor, outdoor runs. So anything you've ever dreamed of, they've got it, or have done it or can do it. So they've taken all the guesswork out of building it. Everything is pre-done to your specifications that it's assembled, dropped off, boom, you're ready to rock. Things are amazing. Uh, Rigney has one. Uh, we've had him on the show a couple of times. Go check out his Instagram and you can see he's posted it up there before. Go look Horizon up at Horizon Structures, spelled out uh, on the internet. It's horizonstructures.com. And you're going to look for the link in there that says commercial dog kennels or give them a call 
844-747-4337. They'd love to talk to you and get you started on the way. All right, we're back. Uh, Working God Radio broadcasting the bite. Uh, we had a lot of questions in that center section. Selection, uh, building hunt, uh, misconception of drivers, clarity, body armor question, imprinting with food, indirect reward, civil work, and tracking. So now we're going to go to Instagram and Patreon. So what do we got? Uh, the first one, is, uh, I think it's been answered by most of the stuff. One of the most right. important fundamentals to work on when building a working dog from zero to 12 months. We've talked a lot about all the uh, of that. It's a good question. It's just, um, you know, make sure the dog is not afraid of anything and is clear-headed and likes to do the work. So uh, the next one is a good one. Uh, how do you work? through environmental issues such as loud noises oh so uh we had another project that we were working on that's not um available yet that will be but we did a whole thing on how we do gunfire neutrality um and the answer to the loud noises and stuff is almost always i just call it systematic desensitization um where we expose them to louder and louder and louder and more frequent and more frequent and more frequent um, over a timeline. The timeline is determined by the dog. Um, ideally, I would like them not to be scared of anything, but I'm also not taking a 10-week-old puppy to the range and shooting a 308 like with him sitting next to me on the bench. So, like, I, you know, there needs to be like an in-between. Um, so it depends on the noises and it depends on where the dog is going to be working. Like obviously search and rescue dogs probably don't need to be exposed to gunfire a ton. Um, they need to be exposed to the sound of machinery. They need to be exposed to the sound of like weird stuff moving for them. It's an environmental exercise for police dogs and for military dogs, uh, and for gun dogs. Um, it's in the name. They need to be exposed to gunfire. And obviously we do that like with this puppy that I just got probably in the night before Thanksgiving, I'll take him out to the range where you've got people working or shooting and, or like one of the sheriff's departments has a class or something going on. I'll take him out and I'll start in the parking lot. And he's already got a base behaviors of like, you know, little puppy stuff. Like, you know, he's clicking, he's sitting, he's, you know, offering me these behaviors to get food. And regardless of what's going on with the shooting, I just continue to click and treat and click and treat and click and treat. And we move closer and closer and closer until eventually we're working you know, within, I don't know, 10, 15 feet of the firing line off in the back, right? Like nobody's, I'm not in anybody's way and whatever else. And that's typically how I start dogs um, with that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, systematic desensitization over time. Yeah. For me, just, just in general, um, environmental things, uh, I teach the dog forward aggression solves problems. So if you don't like something, do about something about it, overcome it. Chicken little syndrome, really build confidence in the dog that things aren't going to kill them. Loud noises is something oftentimes you can get over if they've never heard anything. Um, I do find that if your dog has slick floor issues, you're fucked. Uh, you're, yeah. That's, that's a, something you're never going to get over. They might get okay with it for a little bit. I just don't believe that they, slick floors is a failure for me every time. If, uh, if I can't, you know, if I get a dog and he just is petrified of the slick floors, um, then he's out. Uh, things that he's never seen, though, I think you can help him overcome. Um, yeah. So, so uh, forward aggression solves problems. 
best books slash resources to look towards to learning how to better utilize train your dog. Um, I say you listen to our episodes, you listen to Cameron's, you listen to uh, controlled aggression. Uh, yeah. Jerry gets into so much awesome stuff on controlled aggression podcast and stuff in his books. Just, um, just get online, man, and research it. Uh, and, and definitely read that controlled aggression, especially when it comes to that type of stuff. The problem um, we get in with books is they, not necessarily that they're dated, but mm -hmm. I mean, the internet and podcasts have made it, made information readily available very quickly. And, um, you know, podcasts are faster. Um, books need to be updated. Um, like I see people, and I understand it's important to understand how we got here. But I'm not going to mention the book, but everybody's fucking read it. It's the one that was written back in the 40s or 50s about German shepherds. And this is how you train them. And I'm like, yeah, we also had cars with carburetors and didn't have the internet or cell phones. Then yeah. either. Like shit's fucking changed, man. Just in the last 10 years and canine stuff has changed. Uh, so <clears throat> I would really seek out, um, I guess, modern trainers. I mean, it's important to know where we came from. There aren't any modern trainers that are in either sport work or in police work that also don't fundamentally understand like how we got here. Like I understand the color method, like but I don't necessarily use it, but I mean, I understand like how they did it back in the day and why they did it that way. Um, but so much has happened between then and now, you know, it's important to, I think not be nostalgic with that kind of shit and go back and like read something like read it as history, right? Like nobody reads about world war two. And it was like, fuck, I wish we would go back and do that. <laughs> like, so like, I mean, you're like, Oh, okay. It's important to know where we came from. So it's kind of the same thing. Like I would seek out people that are modern trainers that are doing work now and how they're, and you know, like Eric mentioned a bunch of the podcasts, like us, Cameron Ford, Justin Rigney, Jeff Shuttler, Bradshaw, you know, Carlos and Jay Nix and all those guys are doing a great job uh, and Gooseby are doing a great job with their triple threat thing. Um, but everybody, there's a ton of people all over the country, um, all over the U S anyway, that are doing a great job and that are putting good information out. That's where I would start. Um, as far as books that are available, Bradshaw's is good. Jeff Shetler just released one on tracking. That's really good that actually you can scan little QR codes and like you read through it and then he shows you exactly what it does. Uh, it shows you exactly what he's talking about. Um, there's one for police guys, canines in the courtroom. Um, I think it's Brad Smith. I don't remember. Um, great book. Um, it talks, it kind of gives you like a 30,000 foot view of what you should and shouldn't be saying. So, which mm -hmm. is super important, um, even for search and rescue people. Uh, so it's, uh, but yeah, that's where I would start. Um, for sure. What's next. Okay. So real quick, um, Duke canines handler. I I'm recording a video for him on Instagram to send him. Uh, he can't, he goes, my old eyes can't read that. So I'm going to read it for him real quick and hopefully respond here during this thing. When training a, a GSD versus Dobermans, do you find the GSD waits for commands and Adobe will seize the initiative? Therefore, a GSD is a cold trained canine and a Doberman is a hot trained. Is that true or is that a myth? All right. Let's, we'll see if, uh, Ed sends anything back. Um, Okay. So we are, fuck we at? Oh, up here. Um, oh, I'll answer this one real quick because I know the guy knows he's got a uh, pet Dutchie. Uh, best way to improve recall, 
So, buddy, what I do is um, I'll use a long line on the collar. I apply pressure as the dog is coming back to me. Uh, I mark it and pay him. Then I, I just do that a whole shitload of reps. Throw a piece of food out. Dog goes out and gets it when he eats it. Apply pressure. Uh, you can give the, the come command at that time. When he turns, pressure goes away. Back to you for food. Over and over and over. Make it enjoyable to come back to you. And that always reward us back where you're at. And it's no problem. Uh, the next one from Instagram is what's easier building drive or capping drive. Uh, we kind of talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Capping drive is not easy. Putting the genie, as Bradshaw says, putting the genie back in the bottle, not the easiest thing in the world. That's why I'm always dumbfounded when I see somebody that has a 12 or 15 week old Malinois or German shepherd that clearly has enough drive for three goddamn dogs. And they're like, Oh, he needs more drive. And I'm like, the fuck you need more than that for. And I've seen him like, yeah, I mean, so you build this frustration over and over and over again. And finally the dogs are just to the point where that's almost uncontrollable. And I mean, or they are uncontrollable and then they start smoking handlers. They start smoking other people. And it's like, well, shit, all I've done is bite, 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 bite over and over and over and over and over again. And, you know, genetically and drive building is one of these things too. Like I, I hate the term, just because it implies that if they don't have drive, you can make it. And that's not yeah. the fucking case. Like there's right. a, there's a genetic predisposed amount that every dog has. And if it's on a scale of one to 10, like if you don't do anything, they're going to have a five, right? Like if I don't do any prey building in air quotes, they're going to have a five. If I do a fuck ton, they're going to have an eight. Great. I only need six or five for them to work. So I'll just not do it. <laughs> like if they don't need any more. Like drive, drive, drive. When there is so much, there is so there is something. There is a there is too much drive. I've seen it. I've worked it. Eric just talked about it. They're a fucking nightmare, especially when dogs like real prey animals, like real prey monsters that that aren't scared of shit. God damn it, those dogs are nightmares to handle and manage, and they're that way their entire life because it's genetic. Like when they're thirteen. It doesn't go away. They slow down a little bit, but they still will smoke stuff that moves too fast, and it's annoying. So if you want to build that shit up and be stuck with it for the next 13 or 15 years, go at it. Capping, it drive building is not hard. It's nothing more than frustration, and it's nothing more than hundreds of reps over and over and over again where the dog gets to a super high state of – and it gets to like a super high state of stimulation, and then they're rewarded for that by a bite. So they think that they have to be at that level all the time, and it's fucking annoying. Drive capping is hard. Um, yeah. requires much more reps. I heard somebody told me this. I don't know if it's true, but it seems like it is. I mean, it sounds right, right? It's on the internet. Abe Lincoln wrote it. So, you know, for every time you're doing drive building, you're going to have to do twice as long as capping to overcome that. Um, and even if I don't do drive building, I'm still going to have to do a shitload of capping like this puppy I've got right now. I'm already trying to cap his little ass. Like, <laughs> So, and just little puppy shit for 30 seconds or 10 seconds. I mean, it's not rocket science, but capping is definitely something that is harder and has to be maintained for a long time for that dog's entire career. Capping is way harder. There you go. All right. So yep. the next question, there's two people. I just was scrolling through two people that have asked a very similar question. Tips on a dog. And I'll answer real quick on it. Um, Tips on a dog that has a car seat, couch, mattress, fetish. Curious if there's a non-compulsion way of correcting this behavior. Uh, and the other one was, what are different ways to stop a habit of lighting up furniture and other objects, et cetera, during a search? So I'm going to I'm gonna kind of dip into something that none, none of, no dog trainers in police dog work, I shouldn't say none, almost none are, are, are doing. Um, 
So you can do tone avoidance or avoidance oh. with the dog. The key is the dog must think that the couch cushion is what corrected him and not you. And you can get him to move on real fast. How we do this with tone avoidance is we let a dog loose in your house or in a house or in a training facility and you have the tone function turned on and you let the dog around and everything you don't want the dog to fuck with. You can put out food, all kinds of things. As they're going to it, you hit tone and then stem on the e-collar. Tone, stem. They'll go another way, tone, stem. Tones. Eventually, basically, it's an underground fence concept around all your shit. Eventually, uh, you hit tone, they turn and walk away, right? There's so much application for it in police work, and it's how I got Ronnie to spit out the uh, bite and spit out the toy was out, tone, stem, out, tone, stem, out, tone, stem, out, tone, and then stem is punishment and out tone and on tone, they were spitting it out. And then it was out and they were spitting it. So, but what you do is, so you do that. So you could be walking, working through a house, maybe an alarm at a place. And as he's approaching the couch or whatever, going to do his usual bullshit beep, on that tone. And he turns and walks away from it. If he doesn't, he gets stem punishment now, or you could just send the dog in and at, when he goes for that stuff, you hit him on a higher, a little bit higher correction on the e-collar and don't say a word to him. Don't say no, yeah. don't say nothing. Make him think that the couch cushion, the mattress or whatever. Suspicious um, association. Yeah. Make him think that did it to him. It is not, then it becomes not compulsion. You have a non-compulsive way to do that. Um, the tone works. I'm telling you guys, you really got to look into the tone. It works wonders. That dog goes for something you hit beep, and off he goes on to something else. He is not afraid of it. He doesn't run. He just turns and ignores it and moves on. Um, it's a nice, easy, fast way. And then you think about that. You could use it to tone him off of non-productive areas for searching um, out of rooms. You don't want him to go in a bunch of different things like that. So um, the, uh, no talking are, corrections is what you need. Yeah. The, if you watch people that are really good with um, snake avoidance, obviously in the mountain states and out west, um, and some places down into Texas, if you watch trainers that are really good with that, they 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 have a whole way that they do the whole suspicious association thing, and dogs are fucking terrified of snakes at that point, which is great. Like they can be terrified of rattlesnakes all they want. That's fine with me. And I'm not asking to fight with a rattlesnake. Um, I do a similar thing with that. And when I explain this process to people, especially police officers or trainers that are cops, I'm like, you know, clickers work for a reason, right? Like when I click, they know they get a treat and they're like, yeah, I'm like, okay, you understand that concept. They're like, yeah. And they nod. I'm like, when you make the tone, it's the precursor to the correction. They're like, I don't understand. I'm like, <laughs> it's the same fucking process. It's click, treat, tone, mark. <laughs> like it's a negative mark. It's not rocket science. And they're like, what do you not say anything? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and so for our, some of the SWAT dogs we've done, we do a vibrate and a tone for different stuff, but we do it the same way. And I'm like, the clickers work for a reason. Like they clicker train fucking whales. I mean, like, well, not with a clicker, these a whistle, but still, I mean, it works like it's animal training. It's not dog training. And, but yeah, I mean, it's, they click stem click or well, tone stem, tone stem, but you got the trick with that. And that's how those e-collars work. Um, the Dog Drawaya 600, you can pick, I think it's a 600, one of them, you can pick tone or vibrate and like it'll, it'll make a noise or it'll vibrate before the stem. So they bark and it does the thing and then it stems them 
for like two seconds. And then occasionally if they, you know, once they figure it out, if they bark, it'll give them the tone or it'll give them the vibrate and they'll stop doing it and they, they escape the stimulation. So, I yeah. mean, it, it, it underground fences bit. have been around since like the thirties, I think thirties or forties. Yeah. <laughs> beep stem. The beep then gives them a warning. I'm telling you guys can do it. And think about this guys. If you have a dog who you think, um, will come back up the leash and bite you for a correction or for something, making him do something he doesn't want to do. He wants to go left. You pop him. No. And you pop him to go right. And he comes back and nukes you. What if you would just work on that, where you, you walk around and you keep changing directions. And if you layer the e-collar over it and do not talk to the dog, Darryl, no if words. You, if you're on Instagram, Go follow Daryl Gaunt and Daryl at his, he does like a whole obedience thing for his tactical. We've had him on the show. Um, he has a, he explains it and he's holding the phone and doing it. And he's like, he's tapping, tapping, tapping. Like, so as the dog goes wide or long or forges or whatever, he's tapping, 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 tapping. And the handler's not saying shit. The handler's just walking. And every time the dog gets out of position, we tap, 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 tap. Daryl does a great job explaining it or showing it on his Instagram and stuff. But that's the same thing. Like, then you're not smoking them with an e-collar. You're not smoking them with a pinch collar and they're not biting you. And it works super fast. That's how I do some of the pet dogs. So, yeah, they believe that they, that they did it to themselves or the environment did it. All right. I'm going to, the next question is a lot of words. I'm going to summarize it. Basically, if you were to, um, if you had a couple dogs living in your house, that were free during the day and they were biters, um, you know, maybe trained biters. What, how would you word a sign that you put up for firefighters oh. or to know that there are dogs in there that need rescue, but will fuck them up? Firefighters or just emergency personnel in general yeah. or, yeah. or shitheads. Yeah. So no, no shitheads. Um, no, just, no, it says, um, do you ever seen any type of signage in front of home state in case of emergency? There's two dogs that will bite if entered. Um, and then, you know, for fire department people to see, like, how would you word that? Uh, it says even include a phone number, emergency contact. I don't know about that. That might I be. I don't, I don't my know. Phone I mean, on a sign out front. I'll be getting dick pics from homeless people. Because <laughs> homeless dudes have phones. Just so you know. I saw one on the phone today. Um, so, yeah, I would. I mean, that's got to be the best I, I i can't help but think that like it might be a better option to have some way that like a, a fire alarm that i mean you can get that shit now and like i mean i see it advertised on amazon all the time like with sensors and shit that will text you or page you or something um that's always one of those i mean yeah i don't know how to answer that i mean yeah you could put that on there i mean yeah, go ahead. If it's for emergency personnel. I mean, there's a whole thing about, you know, putting stuff on there like do not enter, like dog will bite or whatever. I see that shit all the time around here. And I'm like, oh, but will he really? But yeah, there's... do you really have a dog, you liar? Well, yeah, there's that yeah. too. But I mean, so, um, you know, on one hand, nobody wants to get bit. On the other hand, you don't want your shit to burn up and the dogs die. So, I mean... I, I guess. And plus those firefighters are wearing those super and they're going to get pissed. I say this, the firefighters in Tulsa listen to the podcast. Like they're, they're, they're wearing fucking fireproof shit. They're basically wearing bite suits. If they buy it, they'll be fine. Yeah, be good. <laughs> right. So that's the next not, question, this not, is, I'm not being this, serious. <laughs> right. This, the next one's a good one for you. How do I get my dog to pay attention to the man more instead of being gear fixated? 
Uh, we sort of covered that um, with the police dogs. The one thing that we do is human orientation drills, um, which is the systematic desensitization to equipment and biting very, very thin equipment and or hidden equipment. Um, we use some stuff inappropriately um, at the kennel from one of our sponsors that um, is about as close to a live bite as you can get. Uh, without getting stitches it'll it'll if you're fuck it up you're gonna get hurt but um we do human orientation drills so the way that works um at first and some people do shedding drills it's kind of the same deal um if you guys follow billy on uh, billy sawyer on instagram he uh, just did one with snap a dog i sold him and then um a group that i see do a lot of it that does a really good job explaining it is rodney and rodney at gold coast they do a ton of those shedding drills of like I don't know how they find all those fucking bite suits that size to fit over another fucking bite suit, but yeah. they'll have a dude in a bite suit. They'll let the dog bite it. They'll slip it. The dog has to out and then re-engage and they'll try and stuff a sleeve in his mouth. But what we're constantly doing um, at its base level is you're basically playing a game with two ball with the decoy. Um, but they do a good job of, of showing that um, when I teach it, I start um, in a back in a table um, and I have a hidden sleeve on and I'll stick a wedge or something in their mouth. And then I literally stand there and have the handler tell them to out it and bite um, and engage me. I'll make sure kind of up front that they'll want to bite the um, hidden equipment first um, prior to that. So I kind of give them a chance and then we make them pick. And I'll, if you've ever been to one of the HRD decoy seminars or decoyed with me at all, where we do this, um, I'll actually take a, a trial sleeve and try and stuff it in their mouth and you'll see them fight to get around it, to get to a hidden equipment. Um, and we do it at the decoy seminars. So typically if a dog has no problem biting hidden equipment, then they generally won't have a problem transitioning to it. Um, but I usually look at that first, but, um, we do what we call human orientation drills. Um, the advanced version of that are, is a fend off. And there's a video somewhere of Hagner trying to fend off one of our dogs with a fucking trial sleeve, <laughs> tries to shove it in his mouth and he bites him in the leg. Um, just completely ignores it totally. So, um, and a lot of that too is exposing the dog to multiple targets. It's a targeting problem. Also, so if we're concealing um, our upper body, um, but we have legs exposed and the dog's like, are like, well, I can't get to it. So it's kind of a similar deal, right? Like we want them to go to an exposed target, um, which is part of the same drill sort of. But um, yeah, it's, I do human orientation drills, what we call them. So yeah, that's pretty much, pretty much it. Not, I, I don't do fucking muzzles. I mean, I do, but not for that reason. So, right. well, that's a right. separate. We didn't have a single muzzle question this time. Yeah, that's, that's weird. <laughs> that's yeah. odd. How do you fix dog on dog reactivity? Um, so, I'll I'll jump on it real quick. If you um, if you're talking on leash dog reacting to another dog, there's a there's a lot that goes into that. Um, you need to uh, control the dogs away from all of this. You need to control the dog's freedom of movement. Shrink his world down to a crate or a place cot or dog bed and be a death row prison guard for a while and, and do not let the dog do anything or move anywhere without your permission. Right. And make sure you're not giving a lot of undue affection, basically reactivity. If this is what you're actually talking about, reactivity is um, a relationship problem between the handler slash owner and the dog uh, where the dog does not believe that you are strong enough to add or going to advocate for them. So they need to do it themselves. 
Most reactive dogs are reactive to one or the other humans or dogs. Occasionally, you'll get one that's reactive to both, but not very often. If they're truly dog aggressive, um, that's a management situation. I do not believe you can ever correct and truly suppress dog aggression, true dog aggression, like we'll kill another dog. Um, some dogs are will wait and bide their time for a long time. The other thing, though, is if you have a dog who has gotten into it or reacted towards another dog, there's a good possibility that that your dog will react to that particular dog every time he sees him. Dogs do have singular enemies. They do have, you know, if they get into a fence fight with the neighbor's dog, they will always fast fight with that dog, in my opinion. You then have to manage that through correction. Um, so that's that's pretty much it as far as reactivity is take stock of how you're living with the dog and stop giving them free roam of your house. Use a crate, use a dog bed. Even your kennel is probably too big. So um, shrink his world down and control his movements. The other thing uh, is stop fucking petting him. Like yeah. when we see with the human side, not necessarily dog aggression, but human aggression. Um, I've just recently, we've fixed several dogs that um, the dogs get it, for them. It's a resource problem. They view people as a resource. They don't love you. We tell canine handlers this all the time. If, and I have not told many pet people, but if you're, you die in your house, your dog will eat you in two weeks. Like if you don't feed them, they'll eat you. They don't care. Um, <clears throat> so it becomes a resource problem. They view you as a resource. And like Eric said, they don't view you as being able to defend that resource or that you're not going to be able to advocate for them. So they tend to be human aggressive in that sense. And we confirm it by the dogs getting tweaked by something environmentally, right? They're like, oh God, I'm scared. And then they lean on the handle or when they pet me and they're like, oh buddy, you want me to pet you? And then they continually, constantly fucking pet him and confirm, you're right, you should be scared of this. So then anytime anybody gets near him, then their dog is quote unquote protective. No, he's protecting his shit. He's not protecting you. He doesn't give a shit about you actually. So, and I typically start those dogs fixing them by ignoring all of their bullshit. Like you want to play fuck around anytime, anytime they start like eyeballing somebody, they get corrected. And then it's when they start getting tweaked out, I give them something to do down and wait till I tell you to do something else. And then typically what we end up finding is dogs that are much easier to manage, but then they don't feel like they have to fucking lash out at everything. That's at the end of the leash, which is nice. Right. Yeah. And you know, back in the day when I was just doing police dogs early on, I wish I would have known this stuff um, because there's a lot of dogs that, you know, the dog at the training that everybody has to suck up against the wall when they come through Cause he's just in fucking, you know, rah, rah, barking everybody. There's uh there's a lot of things we could have done to help those dogs. So, all right. Next mm -hmm. question on Instagram as an aspiring canine handler, other than training with the current unit, reading the policy, what other ways can I prepare? IE case law, use of force, case law slash standards. What standards should I hold myself to physically? Also, what is better or preferred having a dog in a kennel or in the house with you? Have you ever seen any issue with bringing in a working dog and there's already a pet dog in the house? Uh, real fast. No case mm -hmm. law specific to dogs. Um, right. So Robinette versus Barnes, you need to know like uh, off the top of my head, you know, Kerr versus West Palm Beach. You need to know Florida versus Harris. You need to know uh, Florida versus Jardines. You need to know um, all the detection stuff, Cabalas. You need to know um, some of the West Coast ones. There's a ton of detection ones. There's probably 30 total. I have them all written out on our Patreon page at one point. Um, but those, uh, you need to be in good shape, right? 
you got to be able to some units have a a standard that you have to pass the physical um you obviously you've got to be in good shape i'll leave that to that as far as this is what i believe in terms of like the dogs living in the house or not i don't believe they should live in the house if you're a new handler like i just don't i don't think you're capable especially if you've got young kids and dogs until that dog until we know because when they're at the kennel i don't let them in my house like the only time they're in houses when they're looking for people to bite so they don't live in my house they don't interact with other dogs at the kennel they don't interact with the kicker pets they don't interact with the pets they interact with people so their job is not to their job is to find drugs or bombs and bite people that's it that's what they do and they're not there for demos. They're not there to get petted by school kids. Like if you can have a dog that does it, but selecting dogs like that, that are good in homes. I don't teach police dogs not to jump on counters in your house. I don't teach them not to get in the fucking trash. I don't teach them. I mean, that's not my job. Your job as a handler is to keep them out of the fucking trash can and to keep them from biting your kids. So I, I firmly believe, and there are departments like where Eric lives, where the dogs are forbidden from living in the handler's home. We have departments that train with us, the same thing, and they provide outdoor kennels. And I don't think that's a bad idea, honestly, because then what you also end up with is handlers that, and families that turn working dogs into fucking pets. And some dogs can do it and some dogs can't, but you'll send great dogs home and they come back and they're like, oh, it won't work anymore. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's like fucking running around the house like a fucking pet. Yeah, you've been free feeding him. Uh, I'll yeah. just answer the last question was, have you ever seen any issues of bringing in a working dog? There's already a pet dog in the house. Hundreds of times I've seen that problem. Yeah. And hundreds of times I've seen it work out just great. Individual dog, the dog in front of you, yeah. what will that dog do? That's the question you need to ask. And it's always a chihuahua. If you have a chihuahua, you're going to have a problem. Yeah, fucking jerks. Um, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Every time I've ever seen a problem, it's been one of those little shitheads. So best so, way to break, break your dog from being so dependent on you while working. Example, oh. doing a building search... Dog loses odor and stops and stares at the handler instead of continuing to work. Uh, don't help him. <laughs> we yeah. covered this like in the first section, self-discovery, right? Handlers have a big problem getting in the fucking way all the time, whether it's for narcotics work, that well, I said it's for explosive, but narcotics work for building search, especially for tracking dudes that are always up their dog's ass. Like, I mean, you have 30 to 60 feet of line for a reason, like <coughs> use that amount. So, um, a lot of times it, it's, it's time, like, you know, I mean, they're like, oh, we lose odor. I'm like, okay, well, if you lose odor, then if you're doing a building search, you don't get to fucking bite him. Then I guess you'll figure it out or you won't to kind of help. You can use the decoy. Um, I've talked about it on other podcasts. We talked about it on Patreon, um, using your decoys to draw them in like, okay, you lose odor rather than looking for the handler for help. He then starts looking out into the abyss for help. Like, okay, well, if I can't figure it out, somebody else is out here and they keep, drawing them further away so the easiest the shortest answer to this question is don't help him like stop fucking helping him i mean i i mean i don't like once they get to a point where i mean you're working them you shouldn't have to help them but that's me and, and i'll say a little snowball effect uh that happens at training is you have several guys waiting to go and you're going to send your dog into the building search for the training and um He's searching for a little bit. He stops, loses odor. You drive him on. You push him on because we're we can't do thirty five minutes with your dog because we have six yeah. more waiting to go. So that is is kind of a part of it. My last dog, Loco, that I worked. So say we had a guy hiding in the impound lot in a car, and we have hundreds and hundreds of cars there, like thirty aisles. 
Um, we would, I would give the warning, send him. He would go about four or five rows, four rows maybe. And if he had no odor, he would turn and come back and look at me. I would then take ground. I would move up those four aisles and then he would push on, right? Once he got odor, he was not coming back. That was not a problem, but it was just kind of a system that, that, cause it worked out and that's how we ended up doing it. Um, and it was just me moving up and I would do then the same thing in the building search where we would take ground that he's already checked backfill rooms to check and then keep him pushing on. Um, but I would not initiate the contact and, and, uh, you know, getting him to do it. It's not, I would prefer him just to keep on going and not come back to look, but I could tell if he came back and looked at me, he was, there was no odor and we would drive on and I cleared a shitload of buildings that way where there was no one in the building and I could tell. Um, so, all right, here is, oh, this is a good question. So in your opinion, how much back tying is too much? I feel like it's per dog, my breed, a borble. I have found I need to build a lot of frustration and have better overall response by building on this. But some Mal LE people I train with say I do too much back tie and frustration work. My training is working well for us, but my local canine peeps are critical. They are all five years or less working canine. Any advice from some old pros? Um, so this is one of those work the dog in front of you thing. So if it works, great. Now, the guys that you're getting advice from are working animals that are high drive and don't have a problem like engaging. Um, so they don't need a ton of quote unquote drive building. Uh, we talked about that a couple of times during this episode, um, like Malinois, especially like patrol dogs that have been selected well and trained well, do not need excess prey. When you get dogs like Borbles and some Corsos and stuff where their willingness to engage does require a little bit more, um, I guess, convincing is the best way to say it in prey, um, then you may need to do a little bit more frustration. And it may need that threshold, which is what makes them great personal protection dogs because the threshold for a bite for them is usually fairly high in terms of prey. Because if you run off, they're not going to fucking chase you for the most part. Um, there are exceptions. People are going to hear that and be like, no, this dog, I get it. But for the most part, and that's what I said earlier, like if you raise, for instance, if you are used to raising like pit bulls or if you're used to raising corsos or borbles or something that is not a super high drive or I know some pit bulls are, but in general, like just not one of these super, super fucking high drive dogs. And you try and raise them. You try and raise a Malinois puppy. Like you raise those dogs and you're, that is a 110% recipe for getting nuked by your own dog, or they will nuke your friends or they will do something because they will start to see everything as a, and then you combine that with prey and people start acting weird around them and they're like, why are you acting sketchy? I'm going to bite you. And that shit ends up happening all the time. I've converted so many dogs like that, that were raised that way. And same thing, like when we ran, and I don't do fat heads, I do herders. I, I mean, I'm, my experiences with German Shepherds, Dutch Shepherds and Malinois. And of course there's the other weird breeds here and they're not weird, just not those here and there. But for the most part, like those dogs that don't have an excessive amount of prey, um, you're going to have to do a little more frustration. You will have to do a little more drive building and you will have to do a little more of that stuff with those breeds. So I know they're saying it, but they're looking at it as a police canine handler that handles a dog that typically will bite anything you stick in front of them. It doesn't matter. So yeah, those dogs don't need a lot of frustration. They need capping, not drive right. building. Yeah. So yeah. 
right. Um, in your opinion, why aren't American pit bull terriers used more in the canine world? I think you know the answer to that question. Um, it is this most people or a lot of people in this um, in the business of law enforcement are um, risk averse when it comes to liability or anything like that. Perceived or real, they're, they're risk averse. Um, for example, I had a pit bull that I can't, that came to me and I tested her and she had some of the best hunt drive to date that I've ever seen in a dog. Unbelievable. There's no way, no way I could have sold her back then. Uh, it was not, um, you know, the throwaway dog project and stuff where people are getting dogs like that and doing stuff. And there's, there's a lot of, uh, from shelter to, to street, whatever, you know, it's almost always single purpose dogs, but, um, any, the, everybody's too afraid to get a pit bull and have them do what some game bred pit bulls do and attack a, another dog or a, or a kid or something. And then it's a nightmare. And, and then they will be vilified for why did you have a pit bull? It, it's yeah. all there is to it. So the other side that I think too, is, um, this is a business. Um, police canine is a business. Um, there are multiple people, multiple businesses. A lot of people we've had on this podcast are quote unquote competing businesses with Eric and I fuck Eric and I are supposedly competing businesses, but this is a business. Um, part of that is when we sell a dog to a department, there is a warranty, um, that involves health. Rarely, um, are pit bulls, not that they're unhealthy, but is there any sort of guarantee? And it's not common for those dogs to be tested for that stuff um, that we look for. So um, especially when we start talking about dogs, like I get calls, it seems like weekly for, we have a great dog, like the dog Eric described, right? Two-year-old pit bull, great, whatever. It's got a ton of hunt drive. And I'm like, okay, are you willing to spend six to $8,000 on the training plus committing time for the training, the handler plus guaranteeing all these things in terms of the car and the hot popper and all that other shit, just to find out that a dog that you rescued has a genetic defect. That's going to force a retirement two years after you get it done trained. And I can't, I can warranty the training, but I can't warranty the dog. Um, so it is a business decision. And as much as that sucks, um, what we look for in terms of longevity and health in the way that um, some departments do some of the health selection, a lot of those dogs wouldn't pass. And it's just as Correct. simple as that. So yep. it's a longevity. It's a business decision. Hands down. All right. The next question it's uh, I can, the guy English isn't his first language and that's okay. Uh, basically how, how do you manage the distance and rhythm and tracking and trailing between the canine and the handler? Um, you know, I'm a, I use 30 foot leash. Right. And I don't use 30 feet of it. I'm not at the end of the 30 foot leash. I just like to have the ability to range a dog out when maybe we lose a track. We come from a, a wooded area into an opening and we got to kind of cast the dog out, figure out where we're going. So, um, again, it's an individual basis with the dog. I've had dogs that, that work best with a, with a nice real tight leash at 10 feet. And then I work dogs that 12 to 15 feet with a tiny little bounce and it works best for the dog. So you, as far as the distance and rhythm, it really, really depends on that dog. Um, and there's averages you can kind of figure out. So, um, oh, this is a good one. How do you prevent traveling on a grip, particularly with uh, a passive decoy? The dog has a solid grip. Well, I clicked on that by accident. Um, 
here and find it. Sorry. Um, where'd I go? Prevent traveling. Uh, the dog has a solid grip and can target well on a normal standing decoy. When the decoy is passive, the dog targets properly. But if the decoy stays passive, the dog begins to travel. The same occurs when the dog freezes up in preparation for a verbal out. Just looking for tips on how to firm up the grip on a passive decoy. Systematic desensitization. So um, we talk about this in our decoy schools a lot, and I do this a, a lot just by, I think, habit anymore. <clears throat> but we start, you know, there's this whole, like Eric talked about it a little bit, like forward aggression solves problems. Well, when there's no problem to overcome other than there's nothing going on, that's a whole different set. And it, you shouldn't expect it to just happen. So typically what we do, and we do it on longer bites, I'll either start on a table or a back tie. Um, and we will then, this is where the, I hesitate to use this word, but the art of decoying is extremely important. Um, the, the decoy has got to, over time, decrease the confirmation of the, um, of the gripping and the forward biting. Um, so I see a lot of decoys screaming and making these massive moves when a dog drives. I'm like, that's great. I'm like, and you're definitely marking that bite. That is 110% correct. Like, that's what I want him to do. When you don't do that, what starts fucking happening? So how we teach police dogs to out is we freeze up, which is where the gripping, which is where the chewy comes from, or it's where it can come from. If he starts to anticipate the out, he's like, all right, right? So we go from this massive amount of confirmation, right? Like when the dog drives, we're like, oh, fuck and blah. And, you know, we scream. And, uh, you know, if you ever watch videos of me working dogs, most police dogs, like I'm usually pretty quiet. Like I don't make a ton of noise. I don't confirm a ton. Um, and when I say confirm, we start lowering the amount of confirmation as the dog continues to drive. So if you're going to say we're going to do a bite for, I don't know, 45 seconds, these first 15 seconds are going to be these over overt exaggerations, right? They're going to drive and you're going to be like, oh, and you're going to move. Then you're going to stop the verbal and then you're going to stop the movement. So the last 10 seconds, you're literally just twitching your bicep or you're twitching, you're flexing. If you're watching YouTube, you can see my hand, you're pumping your forearm and that's it. And there's no verbal, there's no nothing, right? And they're continuing and that alone is enough to get them to continue to engage but the minute that all of that over exaggeration bullshit that everybody sees on fucking instagram or wherever where like and i tell guys this all the time I'm like why the fuck are you making so much noise and they're like well i'm supposed to i'm like why you know and i've seen multiple dogs have more problems exactly what this question is about with decoys that don't say anything and, and eric mentions that there are people out there there are zombies that don't say a word right and in the sports side we have to yell for pressure but the lack of something that is common for the dog is also another form of decoy pressure where if the dog is used to just getting this overt confirmation every time they drive. So think of it in terms of a clicker with a puppy. Every time he sits, I click. So every time that dog drives and punches, we're like, oh, and make the noise. And the minute that I don't do it, he's like, am I not doing something right? He does it twice. No more confirmation. Third time, he's like, all right, well, fuck, they're probably going to start outing me. So I'm going to start getting chewy and I'm going to start traveling. And maybe I can get some movement out of the decoy. So it's the systematic desensitization and good decoy work and good timing. You got to have a plan beforehand. I'll just be like, oh, fuck it. Let's just try it. So, yeah, we do that a lot. I mean, I try and keep that shit to a minimum anyway. Yeah. And when, I, and when I'm working a punching grip, you know, 
it's uh when the in the decoy is still when we do that so it might be a little bit of movement pause punch pause punch so that the pause becomes a time for the dog to slam a little yep. bit deeper and that might just be me like on a bite table punch and i lean back and hold him on the on the um back tie lean in yep. let him punch yep lean back in and out and in and out and never really move my arm um how do you know when your dog has reached its potential? I, I don't, I don't know if that, what that means. I don't know if that means his is done like maxed out on his, on his career, or does that mean this is as high as this dog's going to get? Um, you know, there's a couple, I'm, I have a couple of dogs in mind that I'm not going to mention, um, that are on the sports side and in the law enforcement side. Um, there's a couple of dogs in the sports side that I've come in contact with that no matter what happens, they have the same, and this goes for law enforcement too, no matter what happens, they have the same set of problems, whether it be slick fours or stick hits or something. Um, there was a discussion going on somewhere recently about the number of stick hits in PSA and whether the one before the dog hits the ground counts right like we're out there fucking counting stick hits because if you do five the person and we do six on accident the person's dog that pops off on six is going to be fucking pissed right well everyone knows that the dog that popped off on six wasn't comfortable at two so it doesn't fucking matter but we gotta have something to judge so it is what it is but routinely we see those problems manifest themselves over and over and over again and with no amount of desensitization is working, whether it be loud noises, slick force, stick hits, gunfire, whatever the hell it is, right? And at that point, it's a genetic issue and there's not a lot you can do about it. So they've hit their potential, right? So, um, you know, it, it's one of those um, issues that I think needs to be kind of assessed in selection first. And then in terms of, I mean, like high potential, like if you have all the genetics there and there's no problems, then it's not the dog. It's probably you. Honestly, as a trainer or handler, like it's not, you need to not ask that like, has the dog reached the potential he can? It's like, has the dog reached the potential he can with me? I know some really, really, really talented trainers that are way better than I am that are very successful with certain types of dogs and are able to make them look really, really well. And then I've seen some guys that I consider fucking hacks that are still successful. And I'm like, you're just really good at picking dogs, which is a skill in and of itself. But mm -hmm. I'm like, you couldn't train that motherfucker. You couldn't fix a problem if you had to, but you don't, you pick dogs that don't have problems. So it's like, all right, well, I mean, that that's legit too, but yeah. you gotta, I mean, you gotta be one good to one or the other, but you know, a lot of times when a dog is like, nothing pisses a breeder off more than having a really nice dog and sending it to some dipshit and the dog being ruined because the, the dog has all the potential in the world but the trainer is an idiot and then vice versa. Nothing sucks more than selecting a dog that you think is going to do very well. And then realizing as a trainer that you're limited with what you're working with. Like I have what I have and that's what I can do. And on the police side, unfortunately I do that a lot with dogs that are given to departments and they're like, well, this is the dog. You have to make it work. And I'm like, well, okay. And just know that this is where it's going to end up. Like, and there's no amount of training that's going to overcome this. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, the next one we've already answered. What traits do you look for in green dogs, both single yep. purpose and patrol? We've answered that. Uh, what is the most effective way to start a green dog on odor imprinting? So I use boxes and I also use 
tubes, you know, like um, the elbow tubes with clicker and food. Uh, I use box with uh, clicker and ball. Um, Ted uses Dutch boxes. There's several different oh, ways. Poppers too. Yeah, yeah, and, and poppers. And I, I don't know what is the best way. I've had a lot of success using just the box method. And yep. But then the last two dogs I did, I could not because they would smash their face into the box and bust open their mouth every rep and bleed all over the fucking place. So when I went yeah. to uh, the wall, hole in the wall, uh, odor, click, back to me for reward, odor, click, over and over and over again. It worked really well. The key is just put the, the smell of the odor, mark it, reward it. It's, it's the and, quickest way. And just like pets and just like police dogs or anything else, consistency is important. Like, I understand, like, you may, I have done this in recently. Like, I've had a dog that just was not having it on Dutch boxes. So I'm like, all right. So I had to switch to poppers. I had to switch to something else. Once you kind of like assess where you've got to go, you got to stick with that method until, I mean, you can't be jumping around and fucking be consistent. So, you decide from the onset direct reward and well <laughs> for the most part you should decide from the onset you want direct reward you want indirect reward what the outcome is going to be a lot of that will dictate now i have done recently a dog that was started direct and then finished indirect but i don't think i've ever gone the other way now that i can think i've never had a reason to indirect reward and staying direct reward i don't think i've ever done that i've done that to clean some things up but um, and then picking a method, right? So when you raise the puppy, you can start with food and then transition on to, and you can do a green dog too, and then transitioning, we just talked about it, transitioning to toy, right? I will say the fastest way with a dog, like a green dog, right? Like if I get a green dog in that has no environmental issues and they're fucking gangster and they'll chase stuff and tear stuff up and they got a ton of, they got a ton of prey, Dutch boxes is probably the fastest way and multiple reps. Uh, it does as a pain in the ass as it requires two people. Uh, but at, I have done, um, I did a dog in, I think 26 days was how long one of our fastest was from no odor to full on searching multiple vehicles with a trained final response that was pass passable in certification. Now the dog had an IPO one title and he already knew how to hunt. He already knew all this other shit, but it was definitely fast. All right. Uh, that's, that is 26 days is fast. Uh, tracking yeah. question when training, well, we know it can be hard to have others lay us tracks. Is anyone opposed to laying their own tracks? I can tell you this. Every single vendor like me and Ted lays tracks for the dogs are tracking. I will lay the track, go get the dog and run the track over and over and over again. But I also get them other people tracking for me when I can, but laying your own tracks is not a bad thing. You can do it on your shift with no problem. Those who say you can't um, are learned from somebody who started telling people that in the eighties. Bullshit. Um, this is another one. That's a big misnomer. Best way to bring obedience in a working dog without killing drive. Obedience does not kill drive. Just pair obedience, train it with reward, not all compulsion. Right. And then, uh, add Make punishment sure reward schedule is good. Yeah. Add punishment when the dog, of, yeah. <laughs> right. When you tell the dog to sit and he knows a thousand times what sit is and he doesn't, then I apply a punisher, but all of the training up until that point has been done through motivation. Yeah. Um, what is everyone's favorite way of introducing detection? We just answered that. Uh, canine med kits. I'd love to hear run down what you keep in your car. Well, neither of us, our current handlers, there are 
a shitload of other guys to ask about that. Um, then Mother Canine, go ask Evan. Yes. Right. Yeah, or no, Janet, uh, Janice Baker. Hey, guys, we are learning to hold and bark for IPO. We are having trouble getting the dog to settle into a good, stable rhythm with his barking, looking for tips and progression or strategies to help him get control of his of his highest drives. I can say this, and I don't know about Ted, I have never, ever once trained a dog to hold and bark, ever in my whole career. I have um, some of the PSA dogs, and it's not, it's a guard, and I use it to start a moving guard. Um, the, the fucking IPO thing has changed, and it's now IGP or whatever it is, but it has changed so much, and there is a ton of shit that is judged in that. So, like the intensity is judged, their rhythm is judged, like how convinced there's all this other shit that goes into how that is evaluated. Um, I'll be honest with you, I am not the, like I can teach a bark and hold no problem. And I can teach like a bark and guard, like moving guard, but the way that it is judged in IPO and I, or whatever it is now, IGP, I haven't looked at those standards and shit, eight years. And so, but I can tell you that the answer is timing and a good decoy. So the one thing that IGP uh, people love to talk about a lot or IPO people is a decoy that has a lot of presence. Right. So one thing that the judges want to see is the dogs barking with intensity. Right. So it's like barking, 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 barking in a nice rhythm. And sometimes they'll jump and bounce. I've seen it's fucking Malinois. It's not German shepherds. They'll jump and bark in your face. Sometimes I love to see that shit. I don't know what the, what the prevailing trend is now, but um, it definitely looks intense. But um, it's nothing more than I was just talking about how we have dogs that get all sloppy when you have a bite that goes passive. So those dogs have got to believe like over time. So you're building, you're not asking to do a fucking bark and hold for 10 minutes or, you know, with that level of intensity. So start out with a lower time of intensity and then drag that intensity out. If it's two to three barks, then feed them a grip, then 10 to 15, then you start timing it, right? What you don't want is for the same with a lot of stuff is for the dog to start falling off of intensity and rewarding at the wrong time. Right. Justin Rigney talks a lot about that for table work. Like when we start making sure the dog is at like peak intensity, when we tell them to move forward, when we're giving them a grip and they're not just kind of being like, eh, whatever. So, um, but that is a very, very nuanced conversation that I'm not really part of. Like, I understand how to do it, but I'm as far as like teaching it to get the maximum amount of points for IGP, that ain't my bag. I, I don't know. I can do it. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to judge it or how it's judged. And don't underestimate YouTube either. Go take a look. Um, yeah, I want to back like, reach out to like Yvonne, like reach out to Balabanov and like mm -hmm. those dudes and fucking Kevin Sheldahl. Like he's one of the IGP guys and a police trainer out in New Mexico. Those guys, they know that shit. I don't. So talk to them. Yeah. Mark Dial them. Yeah. So, Mar yeah. Uh, him too. I, uh, I'm going to back up real quick to a fast one that I, that I missed. What are the best workout, best workouts that translate for a canine handler? So any workout at all is going to help you, period. You know, it's better than doing nothing. Um, but uh, you definitely have to add, when a lot of guys don't want to hear this, you've got to add distance running in. you mm -hmm. got to add some endurance exercise. You have to. And flexibility. Um, right. Uh, if you, um, Ooh. If you have a new handler that is left-handed, do you change anything or just have them suck it up buttercup oh. and adapt when more right-handed skills are requested, re required? This sounds like an issue that has happened to, uh, to this person. So I'll tell you this, man, I had a, um, 
Uh, he's got another good one after this. But so the left-handed thing, I have, um, I had a couple dogs in my kennel that I was training up uh, for right-handed. So on the left-handed side of the uh, of the handler, right-handed, and then both handlers that showed up for training were left-handed, both of them. And I had to switch the I switched the dogs over. I'm like, that's to me, I think it's like asking a left-handed person to write right-handed so that they're like everyone else. So I switched the dogs over. One of them was amazingly successful at it. The other one fell completely apart because the handler was so new and was such a uh, struggled so much with his leash handling that he actually um, really, really ruined the dog for a while. I replaced the dog and then switched that dog back to a right-handed handler. And then another guy came right-handed and they're having a great career. So I, I switch it. I, I don't know about you. Uh, I'll switch it. Um, I actually have a handler that is right hand or left-handed or hold on a second. He's right handed, but shoots left-hander some vice versa. I don't mean the dog is ends up just on the right side. And every time, even now I'm talking about, it, I'm like, what? So, and it's like, yeah, we're, you know, but I switch it. Um, you know, it's like back up. I mean, teaching heel is not fucking hard. Like, so we just back up. And if I know ahead of time, it helps. But if I don't, then I give them a little bit of extra homework and I give them some drills to do at the hotel or at the place they're staying while in between like reps. So it's not that big of a deal. But yeah, I switch it. Yeah. All right. The next one, this is, you got this, you got to pay attention to follow this one. There's a, it's, it's different. So when it's same guy, when you have a canine that knows how to punk newbies, do you warn someone potentially interacting with the dog and risk them triggering dog to repeat chosen punking behavior by their energy or altered approach? Or do you let the handler approach with fresh, clean slate vibe with the approach of ignorance, which may not trigger canine into punking behavior or varies depending on the dog and handler. Hashtag love the podcast. Uh, I think it depends on the dog and it depends on the handler. So yeah, if the geez. punking behavior is like one of these things where he's just kind of a dickhead and like, he's not necessarily picking a fight with the handler. Right. Because then there's a the whole conversation is does the handler even recognize that the dog is picking a fucking fight with him? Um, so there's a lot getting wrapped up into that question. So the easiest way to answer it is let's assume that it's just a really strong dog. Um, and I typically, well, even if it's not, regardless, I give handlers all the same speech. Like, this is what we have to do. This is why we have to do it. This is how we're going to do it. And until we do this, we can't move forward to the next skill set or we can't move forward to the more advanced shit or whatever else. So, um, I tell them all the time, like, we got to be fair. We got to do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Like, even if I have a dog that I don't suspect is that way, I'm like, don't put your fucking hands in his mouth. Don't do this. Don't do that. Like I have a set of rules that regardless of the dog and what I try and do is not put them in a situation that gets them where the dog will punk them or try to, but, um, you know, without a little bit more specific, that's kind of hard to answer. If it's one of those deals where, like a dog, like if you go up to take the dog off manually and he gets all fucking weird on you, like that's a little different. But, you know, because then it's a skill because the handler doesn't know. And even if they yet tell them ahead of time, they don't even know what the fuck they're looking for. So um, I, without some more specific, I can't really answer that like cleanly, I guess. 
Yeah, I try to. If I know a dog likes to punk people, usually it's uh, uh, um, kind of a move where they'll flinch towards the handler, and if the handler flinches, like the next time it's going to get worse and worse. And next, and within a, a few short trips, you're going to be wearing the dog. I let the handler know I would not throw him in there, and and well, let's see if he does it to this guy. I would prefer to tell him this is what the dog is going to do, and this is what you should do in response. Uh, yeah. how do you stink typewriting in the out command? We already answered that. Um, yep. what age do you go from puppy bite sleeve to intermediate sleeve? Uh, obviously after they're done teething, right? So there's no issue there. Um, and then a lot of it too, depends on kind of the dog and the target we're talking about. Um, I've had some big German shepherds that come through that I'm like, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for you to go to the intermediate sleeve. Um, and then, you know, the trick with the puppy sleeves, and then we start talking about the phases of development here. So in a puppy sleeve, the idea here is reinforcing targeting and reinforcing the correct gripping behavior, which is firm, full, and calm, right? At the point that they have all of those and they understand opposition reflex and everything else, then the next sleeve up is harder and they have to compress it more usually to stay on a grip. So once the dog has the requisite jaw power to, I think, crush that amount, then it's probably okay. The last thing I want is for them to not be able to get their little dog mouth on it and then be biting shallow because that's where they can get the most amount of like prey satiation, like drive satisfaction in. So a lot of it depends on size more than anything else with the dog. So um, if they're biting hard enough and the puppy sleeve and you move them up, great. Um, you know, and then at the next stages of development is when we start using those sleeves that are super hard, that are really hard to hold on to. So they really, really have to grip hard. But a lot of it has to do with age and size of the dog more than anything else. So you got some tiny ass little females, Malinois that, you know, little spicy fuckers that are like 35 pounds and may, may not go to an intermediate like right away until they have to have really, really good bike command or bike mechanics to bite those super, super fluffy suits and sleeves because like you can't see it. You can't confirm it. It doesn't hurt. They're not biting the person a lot of the times because their mouths are so small. So a lot of it depends on the size and kind of like the breed and that kind of shit. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, what are the most helpful ways to support our local police canine teams? What do they, what do most need? So outside of the dog in the car, you know, and the outfitting of the car with normal stuff, the, the heat alarm systems are uh, one of the most more expensive things and um, something that uh, some punk bitch ass administrator will skip on and then the dog gets killed. Happens. It just happened to Ted yep. uh, with somebody that was training with him. So if you want to provide things, provide, uh, talk to them about adding the hot pop stuff. If they, if you ask, talk to the handler and they're like, Hey man, our, our department provides, you know, great cars, great setups for the dogs and everything. Check on, um, what the handler might need for the dog, like a leash collar, anything new, or maybe sponsor them to go to a training seminar. Yeah. I was going to say outside of equipment, it's training. Um, there's a like a thing in the shooting industry where you know people show up with like a four thousand dollar AR and you're like you needed an eight hundred dollar AR and thirty seven hundred dollars or thirty three hundred dollars worth of fucking training, right. so it's kind of the same thing. Um, they need access to good training 
uh, and good information um, if they've got access to everything else. I've met people that have great equipment and great dog and they don't know which end of the dog bites. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. I mean, you need to do some training, bro. So it's, uh, there's another thing too. Um, Eric can kind of address it a little bit because he had to deal with it, but a lot of, there's a lot of departments that we cannot by statute accept donations uh, and will not accept donations. And if they do, and I don't give a shit what any asshole administrator tells you, there is not a quote unquote canine budget. There's just not, there's no longer a fuel budget either, right? It's not a fucking line item that says canine here. And if there is, you're giving them a check and you're hoping that some administrator that hates canine is going to say, Oh yeah, handler, here you go. This is going straight for that. So typically your best bet is to either sponsor them for training or get some sort of outside 501 sponsorship for stuff that is, um, we never get this question for SWAT teams. Like, how can I best sponsor my SWAT team? Right. No. Nobody's selling fucking t-shirts for SWAT units. Yeah, Ted is definitely right. Do not, under any circumstances, ever, ever donate money to a police department. Ever, 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 ever donate money to a police department. Give the money to a 501c3 that, that sponsors, reach out, buy training for the thing, or buy equipment specifically. Do not give a government entity of any kind money. It's you going in the general fund, period. I can yeah. tell you they will spend it on bullshit. Or uh, they won't oh, spend it, it at all. Right. Here's the new <laughs> one, dude. This is a good one. Uh, what do you think is one thing working trainers can learn from sport trainers? What do you think is one thing sport trainers can learn from working trainers? Uh, working trainers, like dog. police dog trainers from dogs that operate in bite sports, um, drive capping. The best drive capping guys in the world are sport trainers and sport decoys. It's just, they just are. That is, I mean, we, if you, if you think about what is judged and what we're looking for, the dogs have to be super fast and super intense at everything that requires a shit ton of drive, but they also have to be extremely precise and precision and drive are at opposite ends of this spectrum. And the answer is capping or like we had a question earlier about clarity and that is 100% um, where you learn that from. Now, the other way is variety. Um, Sport people in general, because we have to have something to judge, right? Because there's rules written down, right? So we train the dogs to this specific standard, Um, right? You know, especially on one spectrum, you know, in some sports, like it's fucking brutal. Like they count the number of steps you're taking in like obedience. And they do that because we have to, and like the scores are separated by tenths of a point. So um, we have to have something to judge. So that's why that's there. Um, With the other side, with the working dog trainers, no one really knows what's going to happen. You know, I mean, you can do your best to prepare, but training only for a certification or a trial is a recipe for failure um, for a police dog or for like a search and rescue dog. If you have something that happens, it's unexpected. So I would suggest that, and I do this with everybody and I know PSA people do it too, is we really, and being a trial decoy, I can tell you, we go to extreme lengths to make sure that unexpected shit doesn't happen inside the rules. But 
it does happen sometimes by accident or it can happen um, in other avenues, but training for things that are unexpected or how to handle that when it happens is something that I think um, sport trainers need to do um, a little more of, I guess. A little more variety, I guess. To be a little more successful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're right. Hold on. Let me... Uh... Go back. I got a, uh, we got a couple more questions. What we're going to do guys, uh, we're going to answer the Facebook and Instagram questions. And then we're going to, Ted and I are going to record a separate, uh, Patreon answering just for our Patreon clients. We're going to make a video, uh, just to put up there. We'll record it probably later this week. Um, my answer to that question would be just real briefly. One is uh, working dog trainers could learn, way more about obedience from sport dog trainers, which is, oh, yeah. um, you know, around away with uh, added to what Ted was saying. And what do you think? One thing sport trainers can learn from working trainers is teaching the dog to bite uh, in more places than the field uh, inside cars, yeah. inside buildings, up over shit, under shit, just kind of the complexity of dealing with, uh, with that. Um, dude, I, every time I go to scroll up here, I fucking click on it and it starts, takes me back to the beginning. It's ridiculous. Um, uh, almost there, I think. Um, okay. How do you transfer detection skills built in the classroom, such as imprinting boxes, etc., into the real world, real world hunt? So I see a lot of dogs that are done that are crushed fucking boxes. Um, or Dutch boxes, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, he's done. I'm like, okay, well, show me, like, search a car, do this or that. And they're like, oh, we haven't done that yet, which is what this, what this is talking about. Um, there's a lot of tricks um, that we use. Um, I usually limit access to, like, the area of operate. Like, if I know where the dogs are going, like, if they're going to be narcotics or explosive or whatever, like, I kind of have a good idea of, like, what they're going to search. Um, so... I typically will put quite a bit of odor out and I'll make the presentations of the odor extremely easy to find, right? So that we can textually have like this routine built of we get out, we do this deal. Like I make the dog sit, I make them look at me, I cast them and then I cast them to an object that we're looking at. And this is for narcotics dogs. Um, and with explosive dogs, a little different, especially if they're having to do some buried finds that are, we're kind of like in an unknown look. Oh, and that's the other thing. Like, oh, these are known, right? Like we're not just asking the dog to go fucking find something. Um, but it's one of those deals. And we, Eric kind of answered it a minute ago where, you know, the dog goes out um, and then comes back to you if he doesn't find odor in the building search. Uh, this is kind of a similar deal, right? So we keep the short searches super short, super easy before we start increasing the demands um, on them. And the entire time we're also rewarding every time we're making sure we're getting good TFRs and we're starting to build duration on odor once we have good hunting behavior. So there's a lot of things going on rather than just going from ball poppers and Dutch boxes to finding actual finds in lockers or on cars. Right. So what I like to do is, so I imprint dogs on boxes. Um, then what I'll try to do is I want to see how the dog's going to work right, right from the rip. And I will have the handler throw a ball into the room, bounce it off the wall or off the door into the room. 
I will put the ball in my pocket, come out, show the dog an empty hand, and then let the dog in and see if he will hunt and find this odor out of nowhere. Usually if they do, I'll reward as soon as they head snap on, say, the dresser drawer where, where the odor is. If they're not really putting it together, I actually will treat the room like a set of boxes. I will put hide number one in the very first thing they're going to come to and reward it. The next one, uh, the first thing they come to is a drawer and the, they have to move from left to right hunting for it. It's a short one. Then it's longer like box three and it's longer like box four. And then you get them going more and more and more. And I do the same thing on cars. First, first time we're doing cars, the hide is on the over the one of the headlights. He goes straight to it and gets it. The next one, it's on the other headlight. He goes to the one, has to hunt it out, and then we start wrapping the car. So I, I treat a lot of it like I'm doing boxes. Yeah. Um, how to train more efficiently in hot, humid weather? Uh, air conditioning. Yeah, yeah. Shorter reps. I mean, shorter reps and air conditioning. And don't let them, like if you, especially if you're working narcotics or like detection work, like if his tongue is not in his head, if he's in his car pant, if he's in the car panting, don't pull him out. Like wait until he's not panting. And shorter searches, um, you know, not massive problems. If you can do it in shaded buildings, great. Do it in shade in the shade. Like don't stand out in the fucking heat in South Texas in the sun at one o'clock in the afternoon. And on asphalt, that's the other thing. Like if you can afford asphalt, go ahead and do that. Like in grass. Like, but yeah, I mean, shorter searches in air conditioning. Yeah. Um, so the next one is what our favorite test is. Uh, how do you build focus? On what? Yeah, that, yeah that's uh, K9 okay. underscore uh, Rita, Rita, R-I-T-T-A. We're, we'll have to get a little bit more clarity on that one. When this episode comes out in the comments section, expand on your comments and we'll answer it. Same with the next question on bites of high and low extremities. Um, I, I know what you mean, high and low extremities. I just don't know. What, what exactly what you're asking? Uh, the next one is from our buddy Tank Mosley. This is a good one. This is a good one for you, and I can even throw in something here and there. It says, as a decoy, you can be taught to set grips, the amount of pressure to apply, and when the dog should win. One, what's one thing a decoy can't be taught? Either they have it or they don't. Two, can you explain what decoying being a perishable skill means? Uh, so something that can't be taught is kind of like this in eight in sport work. They call it presence, right? Um, you know, Jason Davis talks about it a lot and he's a fantastic decoy. Um, you know, how do you simultaneously convince this dog without physical presence or without physical pressure that you want to murder him to kind of try and push them into another drive or to pull them out of prey? Um, I don't fundamentally believe that that can be taught. Like we can talk about it a lot. Um, but that is a, I don't know. I, it, I hate getting like hippy dippy and shit, but it's kind of a mindset thing. Um, and it's something you do with experienced dogs and it's something that, that it's more than just going through the motions and every time the dog punches in and, like rewarding things it, it, it can be as, as something as doing something that it, it can be something as simple as doing something unexpected the dog is like what even as an experienced dog so um and then the second question is um what was the second one 
Uh, can you explain what decoying being oh. a perishable skill means? Yeah, just like firearms work, right? I say that all the time when we work and just like bite work um, and just like correct biting and decoying skills. So the one thing that you can't replace is time in a suit. So I get asked all the time, like, oh, like, how? what can I read to learn to decoy? I'm like, dogs. I'm like, go read fucking yeah. dogs. And it's not a book. Like, there's no replacement for just doing it. There's just not. And, um, and, and hopefully having good dogs to teach you how to do it correctly. And then having skilled instructors or at least people that know what they're looking at. And don't get me wrong. There are some really good sport people that from health reasons or whatever else or age or injury can't decoy, but they can damn sure tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing. And their dogs are super fucking good at making sure you're doing something correct. Don't discount that. But, um, being a perishable skill like i've met people that are and normally it's people that are athletic that are very natural at the athletic side of it and being able to be athletic um but even then they're not very smooth and you know there's some transition problems and there's all these other things that um that need to be worked through but as like, if I don't work dogs for a long time and then I get back in a suit, like my transitions are a little rusty, right? Like I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I mean, but it is like riding a bike, um, in, it comes back very quickly, but there is absolutely no replacement for being in a suit and getting fucking worked thousands of reps. And there's just no replacement. There's just not, I mean, there's no, there is just no way. I mean, there's just not. So Right, it's a perishable skill as if you don't keep doing it um like you get rusty like you get your timing gets slower your anticipation starts getting slower um what ends up degrading um your ability to kind of like manage more than one thing at a time starts to degrade which is really important for scenario stuff um because you're worrying about tactical decisions you're worrying about dog you're worrying about the dog training side you're worrying about the tactical training side so there's any number of things that start to degrade over with with lack of reps right yeah so my answer to number one is the one thing that a decoy can't be taught either they have it or they don't to me is athleticism footwork hand-eye oh, yeah. coordination comes from being athletic um we have i was just talking about a handler today that uh during school could not throw a ball couldn't throw it more than 10 feet at the most he would throw it straight into the ground a couple of times he threw it behind him um behind himself it went backwards when he like was on purpose no he's just oh. he's just okay. couldn't fucking throw a ball um, which is such a sad state but um but the athleticism to move fluidly you know like like tank that asked the question is um a phenomenal decoy has a lot of time in the suit right but you couldn't teach tank the footwork, the right. It, I mean, you could teach it, but he would ha probably have to think too much every single rep, even when, you know, tanks well-documented that he used to be 400 pounds and now he's down like in the two thirty range. So his athleticism now is even better than it was, but I bet aside from finding a suit that fits a 400 pound dude, um, he could have done it back then just would be a lot, a lot less time in the suit. He could have done it because he's done sports his whole life. Um, so that, that is, and the perishable skill, uh, everything you said is right. Picking up on the speed of the dog. I think after a little bit back in time, it'll come back to you, but picking out your timing based on speed, you're like, Oh fuck, I forgot, man. I, I need to, to do whatever yeah. a little bit earlier. So, 
Uh, we're almost done. Um, fuck. I, we're going to, some of these are, I just went, I just scrolled down. Um, so 20 years ago, sport and pet dog trainers are using, we're using markers and positive reinforcement to start training. And now it is caught on with Ellie canine training. What are the sport pet dog trainers doing today that you would like to see police trainers pick up? My answer to that would be uh, treating the dog as a dog and understanding dog problems. So when they're not at work, uh, understanding the things that you're doing as a canine handler or canine trainer handler, or whatever, that are fucking your dog up by, and we addressed it earlier with um, too much uh, over- too much undue, un unearned affection, uh, too much freedom, not enough rules, not enough structure, and um, treating your dog like a child. He's a fucking dog. He's not your kid. Um, uh, mine is using the e-collar as a gas pedal instead of just a brake pedal. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. LE trainers, get, if you can learn that, like you will solve Yeah, almost, yeah. you'll fix 90% of what we were talking about in this entire fucking episode. Yeah. So, yeah. So next one is maybe a brief introduction to Napopo that I mentioned in the yeah. teaching the dogs out. Um, uh, will the ATF and Ohio State Fire Marshal ever move off of food reward and making their dogs work for every bite they ever eat? I can tell you not that it. for, for uh, the ATF probably will not. Um, I mean, I can't say never, but until uh, um, it's aged out. Uh, Ohio State Fire Marshal's office. I happen to know someone who works there personally, and his current dog is Ball Reward. So they've already done it. Um, there you go. Handling their dependency. We already uh, addressed that. Um, base criteria for selecting a dog. We got that. Um, personal dog question How do you train your dog to focus on you and not squirrel? So Brittany underscore Lynch, 1029, you, you, you do know your dog is a domesticated predator, correct? Um, he is a, a, an animal that would like to chase and fuck up squirrels. It happens. Um, what I do is basically teach the dog it's not worth it through correction. And it's not me going, no, leave that in correcting. I just use tone avoidance or different things to get the dog to turn and walk and look away. If it's on leash, it's even easier. Somebody put beast mode. Don't know what that meant. Okay. Nine stack. What's up, buddy? Um, I know you do not do much personal protection work, but if you do, what breed of dog do you feel is best suited to this in your experience? And what dog in your experience is best suited for police work? Thanks so much, guys. Personal protection work, German shepherd. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's from the environmental side. Um, I know that they're fathead, like I call them fatheads, but like Corsos and like all the other like normal, larger Mulser breeds that have the ability to do it. Most of those dogs work really well in defense, which makes them, you know, semi-predictable. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of a defense heavy, like or that heavy anyway, personal protection dog, uh, a well-bred, balanced very well socialized German Shepherd. Um, Malinois, too. Um, it's not like super fucking drivey. Um, here's the thing like, um, the same dog that we use for police work, we would use for um, personal protection work. We just look for the ones that are like super, super social. And, um, you know, that's, I, that's, and, and for me, it's environmental. 
more than anything else. That and and some costs like environment because this is a business, and you know, I mean, fat heads cost a lot of money. I mean, Corso puppies are not cheap. They don't live very long. You're going to spend a shitload of money on the dog and a shitload of money on the training. They're not going to live that long. Um, and Corso people are going to be all pissed off. I, I mean, or pick a fake, pick a fat head. Like, I mean, German shepherds are relatively inexpensive, even well-bred ones. Like, I mean, you know, and that's, you know, and that kind of answers the other question of like, we had the pit bull, like, why aren't they doing police work? And it's kind of the same reason. Like I've seen people like, Oh, I have a Rottweiler is great. He's one of the best in the country. He, we want 10,000 for him and he's green. I'm like, I'm sure you do <laughs> well, like go ahead like i'm not gonna buy him but i'm sure somebody will so and when you know i can get a malinois for four thousand and that is probably healthier that has more dry that has a higher level of dry probably has better environmentals i'm like well i mean you know it's a six thousand dollar question so uh yeah i mean it's for me it's environmental and and balance so that's what i look for Right. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm the same. If I was going to do personal protection for somebody, it would most likely be a shepherd. Shepherds, I think, are a little easier to live with than Malinois. And, yes. and that's not obviously every single dog. But um, And again, Ted is right. And this is the big mistake people make with personal protection dogs is they, the dog, everything that some of these people are doing is all defense and they create psychos. And um, then a dog you and your family need to live with. So we want... Very stable, social, well-balanced dog that will do the work. There's a video um, going around right now on Facebook and on Instagram of it's basically these dudes. I don't know where they're at, but they're like, and it's a German shepherd on a chain. And they're like, go touch him for a hundred bucks. Oh yeah. I see. <laughs> go. And that dog smokes people and super, and he'll smoke anybody. I, you can tell he will bite anybody. That, and it's not a nip either. Like he is a full on committed messing people up bite and like yeah he does his job but it's not predictable it's definitely not safe you can't take his ass anywhere so i mean i know i just a german shepherd but it, it, that's a product of training without a doubt i mean whoever trained him i mean anybody that comes near him he bites him great yeah the one guy in the red he i think he earned his hundred because he touched him first before the dog bit him he did but then he was yeah. on him for like 30 seconds yeah so. you should have just took <laughs> your know, touch I, and yeah, you, you should have Understand the I, definition of touch. That dude, that dude was drunk too, though. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. was there was, was something because it took him about twenty minutes. There were twenty seconds to realize he's like, "Oh, I'm getting bit." Yeah, uh, okay. And as far yeah. as the experience, the best suited for police work, you know, German Shepherds, Malinois, Dutch Shepherds. I take best dog available. I I am more of a Malinois guy than anything because I find higher percentage, but um, I will take best dog available. So. Same. All right. The last question we've already answered. How do you solve ranging issues with dogs not going out deep in searches? Uh, the handler dependency stuff. We've talked about that. Um, so anyways, that's it, Ted. Uh, and again, we're going to do one for Patreon. That's just Patreon questions for them only. Uh, we'll probably record this maybe later this week, beginning of next week and Patreon folks will throw it up there. So, uh, yeah. Ted, you want to plug anything? Uh, we've got an HRD in Charleston, South Carolina in November. I think it's full. I think it's definitely over 20 teams. So uh, if you're in the Charleston area down there, um, that'll be the next one after that. And we, and that same week, uh, or no, I'm sorry. After that, where next one is going to be in San Francisco, or I'm sorry, South San Francisco, um, January 31st through February 2nd. Um, we tried not to schedule anything around Christmas. So we're 
good on that. Um, but other than that, Torchlight K9, letter K number nine on Instagram and the Facebook and Torchlight Pets on Instagram. And then Ted underscore Summers on Instagram is where you can find me. So um, all the puppy videos are there of the new guy. So, and this new dog I got named Kevlar. So cool. Uh, I'm yeah. on Van S K9 on Instagram, uh, Van S K9 Academy on Facebook. Uh, also, um, I will be in Orlando, Florida. Oh, blowing week. your knees out. Yeah. yeah. First week of November, starting November 1st at the boarding school, which is a wakeboarding school. I'm going to try lake. I live at a lake and I wakeboard and I'm okay. I'm not great by any means. I'm actually pretty bottom, but um, I can do some stuff and I'm trying to try to learn to flip hopefully. So, I, and I hope I don't blow my knees and ankles out, but I have my evenings free. So if uh, anybody's around in Orlando wants to hang out week of November 1st, uh, message me on here. So, other than that, Sweet. that's it. Um, we will see you on the next one. Yeah. All right, guys. See you. Thanks. You got your reasons. I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too old to die young now. Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E. Blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Duck Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.